Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the movie review podcast where good taste and bad taste collide. Sound effect. My name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic for various various places around the internet. I'm a video. I'm a film critic for here. Right here, right, right now. Right here, right now. This Let's is focus my on place. the moment. Let's live in the moment, not in the past, not in the future. Let's live in the now. And right now, Whitney Seibold is a film critic for Critically Acclaimed. I, too, am a film critic for Critically Acclaimed. My name is William Bibiani, but everybody calls me Bibbs. And we've got a big, ultra-packed episode of Critically Acclaimed this week. When are they not? Um, we like to ultra-pack for you because yeah. we are ultra-packed critics. Because we have been brainwashed into believing that if we're not working ourselves to the absolute state of exhaustion, that we are failures. Yeah, that's that's kind of kind of the, the place of it. There's so many films out there, and we need to talk about all of them. And even then, we missed key films that yeah. were released this week. But... We did see six between the two of us. And that's pretty good. And that's not including our streaming club mm. selection for the week. Uh, this week, Uncritically Acclaimed, we're reviewing uh, the new films You Should Have Left, 7500, A Whisker Away, You Don't Know Me, Wasp Network, and Mr. Jones. And also on the Critically Acclaimed streaming club, uh, we pick a film that one or both of us haven't seen from days of yore that is currently available on streaming and our patrons get to decide what we're going to cover every week this week we are going to be covering at the end of the episode on disney plus wolfgang reitherman's animated classic robin hood Udalali. uh what is the definition of a disney animated classic the answer is any animated film that Disney puts out. I don't think that's necessarily uh, true. Okay, it's not true of Bolt. But, it's not uh, true of Home on the Range. No, or Meet the Robinsons. There was a dark period uh, yeah. where, where uh, there are actually several dark periods throughout the whole course of <laughs> uh, Disney's uh, I, lineup. And when I, I say I classic, say, I mean it's well-remembered. It's mm. it's well-remembered whether or not you remember it. Remember, that okay. was one you put on there, so you don't get I, the yeah, time. I, I hadn't seen it. But uh, I, growing up, a lot of people I talked to about this film remember it from kind of a dark period. Interesting. Of, well, of Disney's output. This is the 70s, no, yes. not, not like their high point. We will talk about Robin Hood's place in the Disney canon and also Disney history and also Disney cheapness, <laughs> which is very apt uh, mm. when we get to Robin Hood at the end of the episode. Before we get into the movie reviews, we do have some very tragic news that we have to discuss. We lost uh, a couple of really big filmmakers in the industry mm. over the last weekend. Um, and they both suck. The, the Both of these passings are just hitting me really, really hard. Mm. Um, let's start off by talking about someone who just passed away today. Uh, filmmaker Joel Schumacher passed away at the age of 80. Um, like many filmmakers, he's best known for his big major hits. In that case, uh, it's mostly The Lost Boys and Batman Forever and Batman for Robin and uh, Batman, Batman for Robin. Batman for Robin. Yeah, you know, like Robin's running for office and Batman's like, Batman for Robin. And everyone's like, ooh, Batman's voting for Robin. We <laughs> Truth now. Yeah. Courage always. Batman for Robin. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, but no, he, and of course, Batman and Robin, which was a bomb, but it's a famous bomb. And it's Joel Schumacher took credit for mm. the way that the film turned out. So 
kudos to him for being upfront about it. He had one of the most interesting up and down careers yeah, he, of any filmmaker ever. He always threw himself into uh, interesting, new, different kind of projects. Mm-hmm. Thing, uh, he started his career as a, a costume, a costume designer. designer. Yeah. He worked on the costumes for The Wiz. Uh, he ended up uh, becoming a director. He uh, directed small, intimate dramas. He directed giant blockbusters. He directed musicals. He directed... Uh, horror some, movies yeah, and biopics. Uh, yeah. some, some of them very, very good. A lot of them very, very bad. Uh, he, he, <laughs> he ran the gamut. And uh, I think that he just kept on plugging away and kept on trying new stuff was what made him an interesting filmmaker. One of the things I think was interesting about Joel Schumacher is whatever genre he played in... He and he even said this in interviews or commentary tracks. I don't know which one I heard him say it in, but um, he believed in the aesthetic quality of film. He believed mm. that films should look good, uh, he, and as the, a result, I remember where that was from. He, that was in the commentary track for Batman and Robin. Oh yeah, uh, and, talking about how he wanted to make Nicole Kidman look like the most beautiful human being on earth. Yeah, which was in. Nicole Kidman was in Batman forever. Oh, my yeah, but yes, on on uh, but in Batman and Robin, a lot of people uh, he responded to some criticism that he received for specifically for those Batman movies. How he tended to like sexualize uh, everybody. Yeah, it wasn't just like making the bat suit kind of sexy. It was like everybody was just sexy and gorgeous and over makeup and just photographed like crazy. And he said that, and he, he was very upfront about it. He's very frank. That's why we go to the movies. Mm-hmm. We want to see pretty things yeah we want to see gorgeous people doing gorgeous stuff of course i shot the hell out of these people it's one of the reasons why joel schumacher was both perfect for and absolutely the worst possible choice for batman because (laughs) he was clearly fascinated in the fetishy elements of batman he was interested in the costume and the cosplay and the Mm -hmm. psychosexual uh lives of Mm -hmm. the characters he wasn't interested in crime fighting i mean he he said he was actually he said his initial idea for Batman Forever was he wanted to go back and do Batman Year One, basically do Batman Begins and mm. do kind of a gritty thing because he'd done gritty before. He did the movie Falling Down, which is basically... Uh, did you ever see that uh, last year they had a... Maybe it was earlier this year. They had a Saturday Night Live sketch where one of the cast members was singing the plot of a lot of the big Oscar nominees and every single one of them devolved into her uh, screaming white male rage over and over again. <laughs> and I was like, the Joker, white male rage, white male rage. Mm. Falling down is white male rage the movie. Yeah, yeah. And I think he... I think Joel Schumacher acknowledges just how toxic and terrible yeah, that it's, is. It's, it's a, it adopts a super conservative ethos, but it's also a satire. Yeah. Uh, so it's uh, kind it, of both things at once, neither fish nor yeah, fowl. It, it doesn't quite play as well today as it did. It even didn't even play that great when it came out. It seemed kind of daring when it first came yeah. out. It seemed like it was, for a mainstream Hollywood movie, it was very dark and it was very um, angry. Yeah. And we didn't have a lot of those necessarily and it's, coming out. it's really out. uncomfortable because that whole movie is just hot and sticky. Mm-hmm. It's actually one of the few, I'll say this for Falling Down, it's one of the very few movies that looks the way Los Angeles feels. Yeah. Like, that's what Los Angeles looks like. Don't let anyone tell you any different. Hot, grimy, and smoggy. Never let anyone tell you any different, especially in the 90s before the smog cleared up a little bit and we started actually having, like, laws to, like, prevent (laughs) prevent us from, you know, just sucking down toxins with every breath, (laughs) which we still do, but not as bad. Like, that's falling down. It perfectly Mm. captures what L.A. looks like in the 90s. But in any case, he had a grittier idea for Batman, and then Warner Brothers said, that's not why we hired you. 
<laughs> we hired you to make this thing more family friendly because Batman be- Batman Returns was way too dark mm-hmm. and we lost money on it or we didn't make as much as we wanted. And so he's like, okay, I'll go in completely the opposite direction. And, and he just sh- threw shi- neon and everything. Shiny and neon and, yeah. and everything's really bright and strange and cartoony and... Tommy Lee Jones is totally misdirected in that movie. Oh my god, uh, Tommy gives, Lee gives Jones is such a terrible like, performance. I actually heard Tommy Lee Jones is going to be Two-Face and I'm like, "Oh, that's cool. He could be yeah. a good Two-Face, like a good serious kind of Two-Face." No, he apparently got it into his head that he had to out Jim Carrey, Jim Carrey. Well, he, I, I guess he saw that he's in a movie with Jim Carrey and has a lot of scenes opposite him. So yeah. it's like, "Okay, we're both kind of kooky." Yeah. So he played it kind of kooky, and yeah, I think God, it, was, it just did not play. You're I not actually, Jim Carrey, Tommy Lee. I actually wasn't a huge fan of Jim Carrey's uh, The Riddler at the time. Mm. I realized that he's doing the 1960s Riddler, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that. Mm. But in the 90s, my favorite Riddler was the one from the animated series, who had a little bit more dignity. All right, you, you know, like he was more proud of himself, and he wouldn't just flounce around and, uh, the, and make the, a lot of really dumb jokes all the time. The, the question mark bodysuit and having Jim Carrey flail around like a monkey. You didn't have to have the bodysuit. I so like the one where he actually had a suit. It was a green suit yeah. with a couple of question marks on it. That's a good look. <laughs> That's reserved uh, for the Riddler. But uh, yeah, Joel Schumacher continued to explore with genre. Uh, yeah, he, he uh, apologized for the bomb that was Batman and Robin. It's probably his most famous movie. Uh, but um, yeah, yeah. And but to, be fair, he, some, uh... to be fair, if he hadn't killed that franchise, they never would have rebooted it with Batman Begins. They never would have gone so far in the other direction that people would have yeah, had but... the grim and gritty DC movies that they like. But, but yeah, I don't, I don't want to pretend like having Batman Begins was like some weird destiny. Uh, no. But he, he followed up Batman and Robin. Uh, he made two films two years later. He made Flawless, which was a... a ostensibly sensitive view of the trans experience. Mm-hmm. Um, Starring Robert De Niro and Philip Seymour Hoffman. Philip Seymour Hoffman, yeah. yeah. Robert De Niro plays a, a, a man who suffered a stroke, and he has to go to a speech therapist. And the the speech therapist they can come they found was a, a trans woman played by Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, and uh, I actually never saw that one. And and the the gimmick was uh, Robert De Niro was compl- completely intolerant. He was kind of a bigot, and he yeah. hated being with a, a, a trans woman. Uh, there's some good interplay and some good performances. It's not the best script. No, uh, I, mean, I want to see Robert De Niro and yeah. Philip Seymour Hoffman act together. Yeah, like, yeah. But yeah, it uh, And then he also made a film that was nearly NC-17 rated called 8mm, which was this like dark seven-like thriller. Uh, so he was really pushing in all <laughs> kinds of directions at once. Yeah, and then after that, he did Tigerland, which is this actually very good Vietnam movie mm-hmm. uh, starring Colin Farrell that introduced Colin Farrell to the world. Um, and then he was up and down. Uh, some of my favorite. Um, well, then he did. He did Colin Farrell. Uh, he worked with Colin Farrell in Phone Booth just a few right. years later. And uh, Phone Booth is kind of a low budget intimate thrill. I think who who wrote that one? Was Larry Cohen? Was it? Yeah, it was Larry Cohen. Larry, Larry Cohen, Cohen wrote, had been trying to get a movie booth. made that took place entirely in a phone booth since the 70s. In fact, he said he remembered pitching it to Alfred Hitchcock, but he <laughs> hadn't cracked it until like the late 90s, early 2000s. Mm. So, yeah. And then Schumacher ended up making it. And it, you know what? pretty good mm. it's okay that it's a good thriller yeah but then he would spin around and do something like veronica garen which is a very good which biopic a, quite about, a good a, film. about a reporter played by kate blanchett uh-huh. um it's it's a very respectable piece of cinema it's not amazing yeah, um, but it's very good there's a good supporting role from the actor I, i'm gonna mispronounce his name kieran hines I think that's right. Yeah, okay, Kieran, uh, an Irish actor. He's very, very good in Veronica Guerin. Yeah. Uh, and then he stumbled into a pile of garbage called Phantom of the Opera. And from which he never quite returned. Because after that, mm. he made the number 23, mm. Blood Creek 12. 
and his last feature film was Trespass, which is not good. Uh, but we actually skipped over like the whole first half of his career because before he did the Batman movies, mm-hmm. he was already a respected, respectable critic. A uh, critic, critic, Cur- Cur- I film- guess everyone's a critic. Cur- filmmaker. <laughs> he's, a, he's a filmmaker, um, and he he actually his first uh, feature film he did a couple of TV movies mm-hmm. was The Incredible Shrinking Woman. Which I I rented that from my local 2020 video back in the day, uh-huh. and it was in a section called "We Dare You to Rent This." <laughs> and these were films that were not necessarily bad, but they were so strange and bonkers, like you couldn't quite understand that it was uh, yeah. the 2020 video's equivalent of what is cinephile videos holy fucking shit section now. Yeah, it's like this is so like it's not just bad; it's just so strange. It and will weird. melt your brain. So we like, dare you. So here's here's a painting of a miniature Lily Tomlin on the back of a skateboarding gorilla. I'm like. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta Done. do that one. Uh, he uh, he took a stab at turning Mr. T into a movie star with DC Cab, uh, which I haven't seen. But his first like big, 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 big hit was uh, Saint Elmo's Fire, which, which is which I also haven't seen, which is largely forgotten now. It's basically it was uh, huge to Gen X. It was huge to Gen X. Big yeah. soundtrack. It had the whole Brat Pack in it. It had um, who did it have? It had well, Demi I mean, Moore, the, Rob Lowe, Andrew McCarthy. It was one of the Emilio Estevez, Ali Sheedy, Mayor Winningham, mm-hmm. Andy McDowell, Jenny Wright. Like everyone was in it, and it was and the, basically and the dead friend was Kevin Costner. No, you're thinking of the big chill. Oh, yeah, you're right. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Santa Almost Fire, it's a perfectly respectable, like, 20-somethings getting their shit together melodrama. But it kind of just was, like, a lot of people look at The Breakfast Club as the ultimate Brat Pack movie. I think it's Saint Almost Fire, but either way, that's a hell of a double feature. If you just want to get all of the 80s in two movies, you can get it all. <laughs> um, then, of course, he did The Lost Boys, which yeah, is one yeah. of the most... I haven't I, seen The Lost Boys. You've never seen The Lost Boys? No, I never saw it. Wow. <laughs> the Lost Boys is one of the most iconic movies of the 80s. It was, uh, uh, I was actually just talking about it uh, with Michelle, and um, she was pointing out how it's kind of like almost fan fiction, the way it was like in a very novel uh, approach, making the protagonists the kinds of characters who would watch vampire movies. Um, <laughs> like Fright Night was doing kind of the same thing, yeah, but I yeah. think The Lost Boys went even further by making them even younger. And it was basically the Goonies, but with vampires. And it's great. It's really All stylish. Right. It's super creepy. The soundtrack is amazing. Um, Lost Boys still holds up. It's very 80s. It's a period piece now, but it's it's very, very good. Um, but the the movies that I think are... He doesn't get enough credit for hmm. are his legal thrillers, because he did two of oh, the best true. John Grisham movies. Uh, he, he did one that was incredibly acclaimed in 1996, I think, uh, A Time to Kill came out. Mm-hmm. Which he did t- between Batman movies, so that was like yeah. big hits in a row. And uh, A Time to Kill, it came out at a time when that kind of film could still be a big hit, especially like with across a lot of different kinds of audiences. So a lot of my friends in high school were like running out to see A Time to Kill and quoting mm-hmm. it and having a great time. Even though it's about defending revenge for a horrendous sexual assault. And a hate crime. Yeah, and a hate crime. And a hate crime to It's about racism, it's about the death penalty, it's about gun control, it's about all of these really hot-button topics that are still the kind of thing that would make a film controversial Mm -hmm. today. It's very well made, it's blunt, 
it's, but it's, it's very well made. I mean, no one can accuse Joel Schumacher of being a quiet, subtle filmmaker. <laughs> no. no, he always he always swung for the walls. He was hugely melodramatic, and he liked milking that melodrama. And I think John Grisham and that kind of gigantic melodrama mm-hmm. fit well together. When you I make it so. steely, like The Firm, yeah. you realize that The Firm is a more serious movie than perhaps the material warrants. I like The Firm a lot. I, I think I, it's no, very, I, very I good. I like The but... Firm a lot as well. I actually liked a lot of those John Grisham mm-hmm. movies. I even liked uh, uh, I liked The Rainmaker, and I even liked Runaway Jury, which nobody talks about. Runaway anymore, Jury but, yeah. is really clever. Yeah, Runaway Jury is maybe John Grisham's cleverest story that's been mm-hmm. made into a film. Um, f- uh, fun fact about A Time to Kill, Joel Schumacher was largely responsible for making Matthew McConaughey his star. Yeah. Originally, the film was going to star Woody Harrelson in the lead role, but John Grisham knew people, and I, I, I might begin this slightly off, but I believe he knew people who had been killed in a copycat killing after Natural Born Killers. Oh, geez. And he did not want anything to do with Woody Harrelson. He just had a grudge. And oh, not without cause. That, that's fair. I yeah, understand. some integrity. Um, and uh, as a result, they needed to find a new lead. And uh, Joel Schumacher was one of the people who said, hey, We've got Matthew McConaughey in this very small role. He played the leader of uh, the local KKK, the part eventually played by Kiefer Sutherland. Okay. And so we got this Matthew McConaughey guy. He's young, he's handsome, he's talented. We've already got all these other big names in the cast. Why don't we just make him the lead? Mm-hmm. And they did. And, and that was and, Matthew McConaughey's big breakout. And lo, lo we have Matthew McConaughey now. Yeah, and um, I'm glad we do. Yeah. But I actually think Joel Schumacher's best film and the best John Grissom adaptation mm-hmm. is The Client. I, I so disagree with this. I love the the client is beautiful airplane pulp. It's, like it's, it, it is it is good airplane pulp. Handsomely presented, the plot fires on all cylinders. Mm. The tension really runs high. Yeah, Susan uh, Sarandon, Brad Renfro, yeah, and Brad uh, Renf- Tommy Lee Jones are great in it. Uh, Brad Renfro plays a young, uh, he was like maybe fourteen at the time, like yeah. a, a kid who witnessed. Uh, uh, death. I don't, I don't want to give away too much. It's, it's right at the beginning of, of the movie. There's a guy who's who's uh, getting ready to kill himself because he knows too much and he knows like the mob is going to get at him. But he talks to the kid beforehand and now the kid knows stuff he's not supposed to know. Mm. And the kid is getting railroaded by this legal system that's going to plow right over him because he can't afford a lawyer. And his mom can't afford a lawyer and he's just poor and it's actually kind of savvy about how Mm -hmm. if you're rich the legal system works for you and if you're poor it doesn't and he what happens is while they're in the middle of planning how they're just going to manipulate this kid and get everything they want out of him even if it's illegal because what's the kid gonna do sue Mm -hmm. the kid runs out and finds himself a defense attorney who's Mm -hmm. just susan sarandon and she's just like yeah okay i'll talk to your lawyers for you finds out the kid is way over his head (laughs) and actually goes full bore pro bono to try to make sure this kid doesn't get like completely destroyed and mm-hmm. get like outed as a as a snitch to the mafia and gets killed. Susan Strandon's great in it. Brad Renfro's great in it. Tommy Lee Jones is great in it. Mm-hmm. It's shot very well. The plot works. Is it pulpy? Yes, but it knows it's pulpy, and I think that's one of the times when Joel Schumacher was exactly the right person for the material. Okay. Um, he also made a bunch of turkeys. Yeah. It, well, he, he... Batman and Robin, best known, one of the best known turkeys yeah. of all time to this day. He did, uh, a, he did, he did a, a teen drug movie called Twelve, which is just mm. almost unwatchable. How do you feel about Flatliners? Because I know a lot of people are fond of it, but I I knew it was also critically panned at the time, and I haven't seen it. Here's the thing about Flatliners. Flatliners is a good idea for a movie, but only about half the movie follows up on that. Because it's about a bunch of med students I saw the remake, for whatever that's worth. Remake wasn't very good. Mm. A couple good performances in it, but... The original is stylish, got a great cast. Kiefer Sutherland, Julia Roberts, Kevin Bacon, and Oliver Platt. Boom. Sold. <laughs> I will see your movie. Um, wow, this must be the early 90s. <laughs> they're, they're, uh, they're med students who basically dare each other to 
kill each other and then bring themselves back using, you know, paddles and medical technology and stuff. And it's basically just like, you know, med students tend to push themselves to extremes. They work long hours. They, they, they go through a lot. And so the idea of these people doing this is dark and a little over the top, but you can see it. The problem is they start being dead for so long. They start bringing things back with them from the afterlife and it's all of it's basically the ghosts of all of the sins that they would take with them. Yeah. Couple of those sins are really really dark and really compelling and really tense, and a couple of them are just I was you know, I was a mean kid and I said some racist stuff to this girl when I was in elementary school. That's bad, but Kiefer Sutherland has the ghost of a kid who's trying to murder him. Mm. Those are two different movies and it's just it's trying to be everything at once and it can't quite be everything at once but when it's good it's quite good mm. um anyway Joel Schumacher interesting filmmaker fascinating career um we've all sort of complained about some of the movies he's made that were bad but I think we've all come to acknowledge that he made a lot of movies that were really good and a lot of movies that were perfectly fine and probably should have gotten a little bit more press see Veronica Guerin excellent movie yeah excellent movie most people never heard of it excellent film um, and then the other person we, we quite tragically lost this weekend is celebrated actor and Oscar nominee Ian Holm, uh, who, you know, genre enthusiasts will know best from stuff like Alien, yeah, uh, Fifth Element, Fifth Element yeah. Time Bandits, Lord of the Rings. Uh, but it was a really hardworking right, was, Tony Award winning actor. Yeah, uh, yeah, he I mean, he was one of those uh, hardworking British actors who would just keep on working. Yeah. He was in everything. He was classically trained. Uh, he started in Shakespeare productions uh, on Amazon right now. You can actually watch uh, the rendition where he played King Lear, uh, the BBC production. I saw that when it came out. It's really good. It's really good. Odd production design of memory serves, but really, yeah. really good. Um, he was just really, really versatile. He could play uh, sort of like look at him in, in Lord of the Rings where he plays sort of a, he plays a hobbit the sort of like round faced friendly guy, Bilbo Baggins, and he's going to go on an adventure. Uh, and then. You look at something like Alien, where he plays an evil robot. And he's a great evil robot. And he's really kind of threatening. And then you look at something like uh, uh, the film he did with Adam McGowan. Um, Sweet Hereafter. The Sweet Hereafter. Yeah. He's just it's like steely and determined yeah. and really very serious. Very movie. tragic movie about mm. uh, a school bus crash that kills like all the kids in a town and he's investigating what happened. Mm. Absolutely riveting, absolutely intense, should be talked about more, I think. That's a really yeah. good movie. And uh, one of his best performances was uh, in Franco Zeffirelli's version of Hamlet. Oh, I've actually never he, seen that. He, he played, Mel Gibson? Yeah, yeah. Mel, Mel Gibson played Hamlet in that production, and he played Polonius. Okay. Uh, and he's a great Polonius, because you need a Polonius who has a lot of dignity, but isn't very smart. And yeah, that's Polonius. That's Polonius yeah. for you. And uh, he, yeah. he really got Polonius. I mean, that that version was like sort of the standard until Branham made his version, and now that's the standard. And uh, I don't... Branham only made his version a few years later, too. It was like six it was years later. It was a standard for a so, couple yeah. of years, yeah. Well, but that was a period when I was in junior high and high school, so a lot of people talked about, oh, let's watch this one in class. Oh, wait, yeah. Branham kind of like cannonballed it yeah uh, and, and i'm not sure if brana will ever be beaten but we'll see uh, mm -hmm. i hope i hope i get to see a better hamlet than that i someday. think Wouldn't i think there's great? only i think there's only two hamlets i mean yeah oh. okay there's the kind of hamlets like strange blue strange brew and uh the lion king but for straight up hamlet adaptations i think you've got kenneth Branagh's everything but the kitchen sink all-star mm. adaptation which is amazing mm. 
Or you have Laurence Olivier's actually surprisingly condensed version where he wanted to tell it as cinematically as possible and he would cut famous lines of dialogue if he thought they were getting in the way of the pacing. I'm not a huge fan of that one, but I appreciate that it's doing the exact opposite of what Branagh does. So Uh, those are the two for me. But yeah, anyway. um, He worked with a lot of really interesting directors, like uh, usually in supporting roles. So he would show up in a scene you knew you were in for a treat. Like when you're going through the filmography of Steven Soderbergh and he's in Kafka. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the not very good Kafka movie, but he's great in it. <laughs> it's like, what would happen if Kafka actually got to that building in the middle? No, no, the point is that he never gets there. That's not what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, he was in a TV miniseries about the borrowers, which I saw <laughs> as a kid and loved. Okay. Yeah, actually the uh, John Goodman movie is pretty good too, but... Um, mm-hmm. Uh, I think the Ghibli version is now currently the gold standard. But anyway, that's a really delightful version. Um, I have a really wonderful memory attributed uh, to Ian Holm. I never met him. I never interviewed him. He's not one of those people I met when I was doing interviews. But uh, one time when I was at home, back when my dad was alive, um, I think I was home from college or something, and my dad screamed to me to come into the living room right now. This is before we had DVRs. He couldn't pause the TV. And I ran in, and he was watching a movie starring Ian Holm, and he says, look, it's me. (laughs) And we started watching, it was halfway through the film, we started watching the Stanley Tucci film Joe Gould's Secret. Uh, Which is maybe his best performance? It's right up there. It's one of his biggest film performances anyway, where he got the most screen time. Yeah, he's he's the lead in the film, Uh, he's wonderful in it, he plays... um, a really fascinating homeless person who a reporter latches on to and, you know, starts writing about. And, and and who may be a liar. And who may be a liar. Joe Gould, as played in that film, I don't know anything about the actual guy it's based on. It's a century story, right? I'm not crazy? I, I think so. He looks and sounds exactly like my dad. <laughs> like, exactly like my dad. As, as Joe Gould. Yeah, like, it's just like, he, if he had based the character off of my dad, mm. I wouldn't have been, I would have been like, yeah, how'd you find out? Where'd you get the footage, mm. Ian Holm? Like, how did you do that? Like, it's just surreal. And he doesn't even generally look like my dad either, so mm. it's just kind of weird. But yeah, he it's nailed it. So super surreal. Only time I've ever seen that. Really like Joe Gould's secret, and and he wasn't above doing just sort of big uh, sort of genre schlock. Yeah, I mean, Alien started its life as sort of this schlocky movie. I know it's really it was a monster movie in now, space. Yeah, yeah I, I think uh, it was originally pitched to Roger Corman. Like it was supposed to be this like kind of cheesy low budget thing, yeah. and they they just essentially classed up the joint. But he eventually uh, did the Day After Tomorrow, which is yeah, one of the most uh, entertainingly dumb disaster movies is, ever made. It's so dumb, but it's very very fun. Mm-hmm. He was in Ratatouille. He played the the main bad guy, I think, and. Um, the, the, like the angry French chef. Yeah, the guy's gonna get him. So he got to do like a, a good voice as well. Yeah. And um, uh, and he's one of those actors. Again, he didn't end his career on one of his greatest movies, but I think he ended his career in one of his more memorable roles because his last film ended up being uh, the last Hobbit movie. Mm-hmm. So he got to re- reprise mm-hmm. uh, an iconic role from an Academy Award winning series of films, um, and that's a pretty good way to go out. I feel. Yeah, and uh, at, at the time he was already pretty sick. Uh, he yeah. had Parkinson's, and struggled. His the last two years of his life, he struggled with his health. But he has such a marvelous legacy, yeah, of and such a wonderful reputation um, of just like Joel Schumacher, just doing everything. Yeah, a little little it's taste, a of little bit more consistent yeah. quality than Joel Schumacher, because well, at least to his be fair, performance was always his good. performance was always good. And he played Napoleon so, three times on film. <laughs> time right, Bandits is the funniest. 
Time Bandits is uh, the funniest. Didn't he play Napoleon the Pig in Animal Farm? No, but he played another pig in he, Animal Farm. He, he was in Animal... He played a voice in an animated version of... Uh, or uh, like a, he was like, Squealer. Squealer, okay. Yeah. He played a pig in Animal Farm. Yeah. But not Napoleon the Pig. No, that would have been... <laughs> that would have been too perfect. Damn it. <laughs> How do you do that? I love yeah, it when actors even, get like typecast as a character and play them for multiple directors mm-hmm. in completely different projects. Like um, mm-hmm. Edward Herman ended up playing FDR like... 20 times or something oh, like right. that like just because he, he looked the part he was the guy who was fdr all or, the time uh, who was who was who's the actor who kept on playing uh, tony blair oh michael sheen michael sheen yeah, yeah kept playing tony he blair like, just very, like michael tony blair he's excited he's the right age ver- various productions by various filmmakers but he's playing uh playing tony blair uh and he was even funny uh ian holm like he yeah. could play he could play very stern characters and very strange characters but uh you watch something like the fifth element and he's just just a slapstick character. He's he a plays delight. This, this goofy old monk who can't get words out. And yeah. uh, there's that funny bit where he sees a bomb like through a, a doorway and he just turns around and starts stuttering. Don't say it's a bomb. <laughs> that bit where he's just stuttering is like, that's hilarious. He's it's great. He's great, great, great comic timing. Versatile, well. wonderful. Mm. And yeah, you could just throw a rock at his IMDb page and hit a good movie. Don't throw a rock at his IMDb page and break <laughs> your laptop. My point is, it's a metaphor. Anyway, Ian Holm and Joel Schumacher will absolutely be missed. Uh, they've left a pretty impressive legacy. And, um, well, rest goodbye. in peace. Rest in peace. Yeah. Goodbye and, and, and fare thee well. And um, I, think of, I can think of no better way to, to sort of move on than to move into the future of mm. cinema. There are a lot of new movies that were opening this week. Um, I'm trying to think of because usually we sh- we open the show on like the biggest, uh-huh. and I think the closest thing we've got to the biggest is the new Blumhouse movie. You should have left. Uh, yeah, that's it's getting a, a, one of those premiere pushes. It's on various uh, video on demand platforms. Yeah. Uh, it's when uh, when quarantine began and films like Trolls World Tour and some other like other films that had just opened up like Bloodshot mm-hmm. uh, wanted to sort of separate themselves from. The rest of the herd, as it were. Yeah. They uh, Amazon started up this like premiere movie channel, and it's on one of those premiere movie channels, which just means it's more expensive. Which just means it was supposed to go to theaters and probably needed to to make its money back. So we're gonna give it a little extra highlight mm. and hope Scoob makes its money now, back somehow. I regret not seeing this one because isn't this based on uh, Mark Daniel Mark Danielewski's book House of Leaves? No. It's not. No, I, it, based on what I know of House of Leaves, it has some similarities. Okay. Uh, but it is not actually based on that. It's actually, it is based on a novel, though. Because there, there's a scene where, because uh, I saw this in the preview, where they're measuring a room in the house, and yeah. they go outside and measure the outside of the house, and they found that the interior is slightly larger. Yeah. That's that's straight from House of Leaves. I, I, that's that's I, a scene from the, the book in House of Leaves. Based on what I know, you're, you, I believe you're correct. It's right. actually based off of a German novel by Daniel Kelman. Okay. Um, who, yeah, it's not called House of Leaves. It's trying to think of what the actual... <laughs> no, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to find out because it, it was translated to You Should Have Left. Yeah. I'm trying to find uh, what the original German title was. You Should Have Left. Uh, anyway, you should have left f- a book, which is <laughs> the uh, film. Anyway, Du hattest gehen sollen, so right. not House of Leaves. Um, well, uh, Daniel Daniel Kelman. All right. Um, well, maybe Mark Danielewski was inspired by this German uh, novel. No, because the German novel came out in 2017. Oh, so it's probably the other way around. Okay. Well, 
It bears similarities. It bears similarities. And, and it's directed by David Kep, who worked with Kevin Bacon on uh, Stir of Echoes. Yes, which is an absolutely wonderful uh, supernatural thriller that got completely overlooked because it came out like a month after The Sixth Sense. Yeah. And like The Sixth Sense, it's about someone who gets the ability to uh, speak to and hear ghosts and mm. tries to figure out what happened to them and like what how uh, this one person got murdered. And it's, Instead of a, a scared child, imagine it's like, oh, just a working class dude. Yeah, played by Kevin Bacon, who starts going slowly mad and he doesn't know what's happening to him. It's really good. It's really good. It's very stylish. It's very well acted across the board. Uh, did not deserve to be swept under the rug the way it was. I'm actually, generally speaking, a fan of David Kep as a filmmaker. Mm. Um, David Kep uh, is best known uh, as one of like the biggest screenwriters in Hollywood. Uh, he's responsible for the scripts too, and yeah, these are big blockbusters, so other people worked on them as well. But uh, he wrote the original Spider-Man. He wrote the original mm. Mission Impossible. He wrote the original Jurassic Park. Yeah, that in and of itself mm. never has to work again. His place in cinema <laughs> history is is permanent. Mm. But when he directs, he usually does smaller scale genre films. He did a really interesting thriller called Trigger Effect, which is about what if all of the power went out on Earth at once, and it's just about the first couple of days. Mm. And it's very very exciting, very very well done. It's, it's, it, it's a, a little bit potboilery. It's yeah. kind, of, kind of sleazy. That's my point. He, when he writes these huge mm. movies, but then he makes these like glorified B movies, and they're just better than you'd mm. think. Um, he did a movie that you and I really, really love called Premium Rush, starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt as a bike messenger in New York City, who, mm. it turns out, mm. has something incredibly valuable in his messenger bag, and a corrupt cop played by Michael Shannon is trying to stop him. It features amazing stunts, mm. fun filmmaking, great gags, Michael Shannon, it was Oscar one, worthy in it. One of the best films of 2012, uh, and I'm not even exaggerating. No, I'm not exaggerating like either. I seriously, I, I remember writing down like the best performances of the mm. year, and my number one was Michael Shannon. Because he's just hilarious. He's amazing, it. and he's really good. It's not just a funny mm. performance; like it's a complete mm. character. And and his alias, uh, I gotta, I gotta say, it's it. so funny. It's so funny. Uh, he he plays a corrupt cop who gives fake names whenever he meets somebody. In fact, he gives the same fake name, and the fake name he's chosen is Forrest J. Ackerman. Yeah. Now, Forrest J. Ackerman, if you're a horror fan, you know the name. Uncle Forey uh, was the founder of Famous Monsters of Filmland, one of the. Not just one of the best monster and movie magazines that was ever written, but the one that kind of defined film fandom for generations thereafter. Like yeah, what, what it was to be an enthusiast and a collector yeah. in a um, way that hadn't been sort of made public before. Forrest Jackman isn't uh, uh, alive anymore, and indeed there are actually some controversies about some of his proclivities uh but uh, he had a big impact on things and the joke of his name being constantly dropped in premium rush is very very funny uh so his latest film is another supernatural thriller starring kevin bacon it's called you should have left kevin bacon plays a banker with a mysterious past his wife died under mysterious circumstances now he is married to a much younger woman an actress played by amanda seyfried and they have a, a, a young daughter together okay he uh, is riddled with a lot of anxieties. He has anxieties over his age. He's married to a much younger woman. Can't he keep up with her anymore? Um, he's very jealous when she does like sex scenes in her movie. It makes him feel very inadequate. And he's still reeling with a lot of guilt over whatever it was happened to his wife. So they decide to go get away from it all. They rent a house in Wales where they're just going to unplug, get away from the world, and reconnect as a family and get everyone hunky-dunky again. 
Uh, it's a horror movie, so that doesn't happen. A lot of bad things happen. Uh, and the house itself turns out to be, um, yeah, geography and geometry do not apply to it. And at okay. first it just seems like, wow, it's really easy to get lost in this house. But what you realize is that, like, no door ever leads to the same room more than once. Oh, like, so you'd go insane pretty fast. Yeah, well, like, again, it doesn't do it all the time. But, like, as the movie gets going, it gets worse and worse and worse. And Kevin Bacon starts to realize, maybe I can't leave anymore. Like, maybe it's physically impossible. Um and of course, his marriage starts to fray, and his daughter goes missing, and all of this, um, frankly, boilerplate haunted house stuff. And that's really the problem with the movie. It's not that it's bad, per se. It's just it's doing so many things that other movies have done before and better that it never distinguishes itself, and it never feels like this story really needed to be told. Mm. It feels like, well, we could get Kevin Bacon in a house this week. Well, how good is it though? I mean, if, even it's if it's, even if it's just a standard haunted house picture, it can be a good standard house haunted that's, house picture. That's totally true, and there are lots of haunted house pictures that are perfectly formulaic and yet also very very strong. Mm. This isn't really one of them. There's stuff in it that works. Kevin Bacon is, you know, I think he's one of the more like underrated actors of his generation because. He always gives his all to every performance, even if the movie doesn't warrant it. Mm -hmm. And here he's playing this like sort of tortured leading man who gets lost a lot. And that's the sort of thing that I've seen a lot of actors flounder with. Mm -hmm. He's good in that. Amanda Seyfried's role is completely underwritten and yeah. it really sucks for her. The little girl was very good. I forget her name, but she's like that's, that's a curse of Amanda Seyfried. She's yeah. actually a pretty versatile actress. Yeah. And she always... It, it's that old, like, really sexist Hollywood cliche. You play the girl. It's like, yeah. give her some substance, please. And that's how I felt about Mia Wasikowska for a long time. Yeah, where, like, yeah. she has so much talent, and she got so many generic roles from Hollywood. Mm. And it was only when she stepped out and did weird stuff like Maps to the Stars and Damsel that she really got to, to do, do something interesting, interesting things. Yeah. And when she did, she was great. Um, so I think that's, that's true for Amanda Seyfried here as well. It's Kevin Bacon's movie. It's ostensibly about their relationship, but their relationship is a cliche. Mm. Um, he's, he's jealous. He's controlling. Uh, it, it, will it somehow relate to this haunted house thing? Probably. Um, the only time it gets really interesting is the, the design of the house. And it's an actual house. Apparently it's called the Life House because okay. it's supposed to be you know sort of this reclusive retreat, this meditative space. Um, it's very stark. Okay, it's full of hallways. It's full of you know doors and everything like that. It's it's not a lot to distract the eye. So when they mess with it and they change the color design, or all of a sudden this room has a new door in it, it's really noticeable and jarring. And whenever we're just focusing on the house itself, it's actually rather creepy. Mm -hmm. But whenever we're focusing on why is this house picking on Kevin Bacon, it's rote mm -hmm. and annoying. What's weird is that David Kep kind of did this already. He did a movie called Secret Window starring Johnny Depp and John Turturro. It was based on a Stephen King story. Yeah, and um, Secret Window is actually pretty good. I like Secret Window. Secret Window is a very effectively told story that in an, it was also kind of formulaic because it's returning to a lot of the themes that uh, uh, Stephen King approached in The Shining. Authors mm. in seclusion, losing their mind, and um, their marriages are falling apart due to jealousy and anger issues. Yeah. Um, in fact, actually in the book for You Should Have Left, Kevin Bacon's character was a screenwriter. And David Kep, I interviewed him, David Kep changed it because it had been done so many times. And I was a banker. But I actually think that was a mistake because, yeah, it's a cliche, but I think it's a different kind of person who imagines things for a living and actually, like, ponders and plums their subconscious mm. as opposed to 
a banker. And the fact that he's a banker has nothing to do with anything. It doesn't really inform the way he views the world also, or anything. A, it's just a, kind of perfunctory. A banker isn't a profession. It's a movie profession. Yeah. It's like, uh, oh, what, what do you do? Well, I, I only make uh, 200 grand a month, but uh, you know, it's, it's all I can scrap together being a magazine publisher yeah. in 2020. Yeah. yeah when when was the screenplay written? 1934. Yeah. Now I'll grant you. I'll, I'll grant you that there's probably a lot of like baggage people have with people in the financial industry, but mm. the movie doesn't touch that at all. It's actually completely incidental. It's just a reason why he can afford this house. We don't need a reason why he can afford this house. His wife is a rich actor. She can afford the house. That would actually make more sense if you Gotta really change. want to take. What if he's just change the power dynamic? What if he's bit. just fucking nobody? Yeah. What if he's just some guy she met and maybe he like was a bartender at a local cool club and she just fell for him and mm -hmm. he's been mooching. You could have played off of that. Instead it just it, the pieces don't really seem to fit, which should be appropriate for a movie about this sort of labyrinthine house yeah. that, you know, constantly is like shifting around. But yeah, by the time it all wraps up, it wraps up and just a the perfunctory is the only word I can use. Like it's not bad. It's uh, Kevin Bacon did another film with Blumhouse called The Darkness, which is legitimately very bad. Like just oh, from top to bottom. I've seen so many movies called Darkness. They, which they, one was that? they go to the Grand Canyon and they're a little boy who is, um, I think it's autistic. Oh, I didn't um, see this one. I saw yeah. the one with Anna Paquin where yeah. uh, like darkness itself was haunted. No, The Darkness. Some, some such thing. The Darkness is a Blumhouse film starring Kevin Bacon as the patriarch of a family. Uh, and without realizing it, one of their kids stole an ancient indigenous artifact that, of course, brings evil into their house. Mm. And it's so fucking... Just, <laughs> it doesn't work. It doesn't mm. make sense. The things that things are scary are actually on the offensive side in terms of what they're deciding to demonize. And um, yeah, it doesn't play... At all. Uh, you should have left... Yeah, if you want a new horror movie and uh, you've run through your other options, way worse stuff you could watch. I'll grant you that. It's not a terrible motion picture, but, man, this is just mediocrity. This oh, is like the height bad. of mediocrity, if such a thing could exist. Okay. I, I was really interested, because I yeah. like David Kep, and it looked like an interesting Haunted House picture. Like, Kevin Bacon's good. The house is interesting. Some of the, the editing and the when they get lost in the house is cool, mm. but... Other than that, nothing about it's going to stick no, with that's, me. That's really too bad. All right, well, tell me about a movie you saw. What do you want to talk about, Whitney? Let's talk about the new Olivia Assayas movie. Hey! Uh, which totally squeaked out and nobody's talking about it. Which is odd, because Olivia Assayas is a pretty well-known uh, international director. Uh, mm -hmm. Olivia Assayas is, is from France, but uh, works all over the world. Mm -hmm. Uh I have not seen nearly enough of his movies. He's incredibly prolific. Yep. I think his last movie was... Oh, what is it was Personal it? Shopper? No, I think he did one since Personal Shopper. Okay, I'm looking it up right here. Uh, I, he, he did, did a film called Nonfiction, which I missed. I didn't see um, that one either. Uh, but he did do Personal Shopper, which is a film I'm very fond of, where uh, Kristen Stewart is essentially being uh, text-haunted by what could be the ghost of her dead brother. Yeah. Uh, 
in a world where ghosts actually exist, she's actually like a, a mm-hmm. psychic medium, but she's also a personal shopper for a big celebrity. Fashion it's, model, it's, yeah. Uh, she can't go out and shop for her own stuff, mm-hmm. so she gets mm-hmm. Kristen Stewart to do it. It's a weird job. It's, it's a weird, and that sounds like really high concept, but the the talent of Olivia Assayas is he makes everything really kind of downbeat mm-hmm. in a lot of his more intimate dramas, but he can also play really big. Uh, he did a film called Carlos, this enormously long uh, biography. Uh, of a guy named Carlos, uh, <laughs> which I, I didn't, I didn't see, so I, can't, I actually can't comment on Carlos. But uh, he's he's uh, done uh, some like lar- larger, much more ambitious films. Yeah, uh, he's done a lot of uh, really kind of uh, stylish dramas. He's done a lot of realist Irma dramas. Vep I really is very liked, cool, yeah, yeah, I really liked Irma Vep. Um, I couldn't get through Demon Lover. I know a lot of people recommended it, and I just I was not on its wavelength. Demon Lover is one of those movies that I I want to recommend to everybody, but it sucks. <laughs> like it, it's like it's it sucks in a really fascinating way. Uh, so yeah, that's what? and now is he's uh, he's taken on this really ambitious project called Wasp Network, which tells the true story of a network of revolutionaries and counter spies who are working to undermine the Cuban government all throughout the 1990s. So it starts, it starts in 90 and ends in like around 97. And, uh, it chooses to focus on, uh, three different couples. Uh, one is, let me look up the cast here. Uh, One is played by uh, Edgar Ramirez. Uh, he's married to Penelope Cruz. They are, uh, he plays a pilot who uh, decides to say, I'm going to do this quick, quick job out. He says to his wife, I'm going to do this quick job out in, in the Cuban Sea. And he ends up flying to Miami and defects without, wow. without telling P- Penelope Cruz. And it turns out that he's defected because he actually wants to join the American effort to help refugees who are fleeing Cuba mm. by, like, dropping them supplies. We also have a, a fellow a played by Wagner Malra. Who, um, if you recall, was just in the movie, um, oh golly, what was it called? It's just guy's first name. <laughs> um, Steve. No, Sergio. Perry. He was in Sergio. Oh, Sergio. Yeah, the guy who played Sergio. Yeah, yeah. I uh, played uh, Sergio. Sergio, Sergio. You were very well played by Sergio, that gentleman. He played Sergio DeMello. Um, Sergio is napping right now. He cannot be bothered. Yeah, he plays a, a rich to-do guy who actually is has to force himself into the drug trade in order to fund anti-government activities. So he's in a bit of a moral quandary. Mm-hmm. So he's getting very rich and he's actually a drug dealer, but he's helping like a very noble cause. And he's married to Ana de Armas, who becomes wise to what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Also from to, Sergio. Also from Sergio. And in fact, they were a couple in Sergio as well. And they, uh, you know, they have a very strained relationship because of it. In fact, you get to see that fighting a, in a revolution, and this seems to be the theme of the movie, is the thing that's going to put like a huge strain on you as a person. It's going to ruin all of your relationships. It's going to kind of erode at your soul, but you have to keep on doing it because it actually is a noble cause. Right. Uh, and then we also have uh, Gael Garcia Bernal, who plays uh, yet another revolutionary. He's like on the legal side of things. He's hmm. helping from the, uh, the police perspective. When it focuses on those characters, it's actually pretty interesting. It's easy to follow, and there's a lot of just good crackerjack moments where there's a lot of like really fast exposition. Uh-huh. Uh, there's even like a, there's a really exciting, uh, like a plane is shot down, so there's some like action in it as well, which uh-huh. is really weird for an Olivia Assayas movie. But then, yeah, you you, you said you said when it focuses <laughs> on these characters, which makes me think that there are times some, when it does not. So well, 
Olivia Sias was not content to focus on characters. He didn't want to tell the story from the perspective of these people, which is actually a good idea because it can give you a kind of an intimate view of a yeah. point in history. It's also a lot of people yeah. already from a lot of different yeah. perspectives. So yeah, we already so have like a, lot a lot of covered. Uh, there's a lot of it's covered, and this movie's over two hours long. It feels like it should have been five. Yeah. It feels like it should have been a miniseries, actually, uh, yeah. where he starts to expand and expand, and he starts focusing, like, pulling focus away from his main characters, starts focusing on all of these other supporting players, and you can tell that he wants to do nothing smaller than encapsulate the entirety of Cuban history in the 1990s. Everything that was going on politically and in the streets and in terms That's of so refugees and cutting to news clips and here's what Bill Clinton is saying at the time and here's what the regime was devol- evolving through. So, 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 so hard and to do. It's hard to do. It's it's possible. If you've seen yeah, Gilo Partacorvo's film The Battle of Algiers, you'll see a good way of doing that sort of thing. But we've all seen it done in mm-hmm. ways that are, if not bad, then certainly mawkish. You look at something like Forrest Gump. Uh, which like reduces the 60s and the 70s down to a series of bullet points that are mostly jokes. Mm. There, I remember back in the 90s, there was a series of TV miniseries that were called things like the 60s. Uh, yeah, the 60s and the 70s. In which, in, in which like this one large like family turned out that someone from this family was there at every major event in the 60s. And like they were the one who put a flower and a gun for the first time at a protest. Oh, and you just want to slap the TV like when I was young and didn't know enough about the 60s, I was just like, this is probably accurate. <laughs> but now I'm an adult and I'm like, this is the stupidest fucking thing. How dare they sell that to us? Remember when Warhorse threw the first brick at Stonewall? <laughs> Stonewall is not a good movie. No, that, that's the Roland yeah. Emmerich film. And it's, just, yeah. it's quite like Stonewall that's, a, invents that's another like, one that sucks, like, but I want you to see it because it's just so unbelievably corny. It's, it's uh, hey, we're going to tell a story about the Stonewall riots, one of the most, you know, rich culturally interesting places um, in America at the time and this incredible turning point for gay rights and, um, you know, this place where a bunch of, like, corrupt cops would, you know, just totally, you know, abuse their power and hurt people and um, all of these real-life figures are in the area trying to make a difference politically and we're going to invent a new white guy to come in and be our and be the center yeah. of attention. And it's so fucking terrible and the movie bends over backwards to try to make sure he's there for everything and throws the first brick. Fuck you. <laughs> but the best oh, thing God. about that movie, and I know this is a big segue but or, or, or sideline, but the best thing about that movie was we watched this movie with a friend of ours named Max, and he had the absolute best idea for how to fix Stonewall. It was the best interpretation of this movie, and it was the only one that made it made any kind of sense because whatsoever. Because the protagonist looks like he doesn't know why he's there most of the mm. time. Like, he's having sex, and he looks confused. Like This not, is how sex works. That's, yeah. this is, is, this what, is this what happens in movies? Like, and, is and this Ma- how you sex a person? And yes. Then, and then Max's idea was... What if this is an episode of Quantum Leap and just before the opening credits, Scott Bakula leaps Le- into this guy his, and doesn't know what he's doing half the time and he's constantly trying to figure oh, out what he, why he's supposed to like, oh, I'm supposed to throw the first brick at Stonewall. Oh, I'm going to be here for so long. That's not for years. Then he threw, then he threw the brick and he left out. <laughs> it's terrible. Anyway, so Olivia Sayas is doing a different thing. Uh, is it, <laughs> we got off quite. No, I, I admire Olivier Assayas. I like him as a filmmaker. I wish I had seen more of his movies. Yeah. And I, I feel like when he's dealing on a human level with certain things, we can really get into what uh, what he's thinking about this. What is the actual uh, cost of this? What's at stake? And what do we win? Mm. And those questions are all very interesting. And when we know those, and they, these are all based on real people. And when, so we get to know those stories. They're great. But 
you're doing too much. You either need to shave out a lot, which would actually make this too short a film and would make it feel a little too perfunctory. Or I think what Osias wanted to do was make it gigantic. I think he really wanted to and just do all of Cuban history throughout the 1990s and really kind of point out the, the very slow collapse of the regime uh, and the people who are responsible for pushing it down. Hmm. Uh, and it never gets to, it never feels like it's the scope that it is. Hmm. It, it feels a little bit too shabby. Um, so it doesn't quite it, live up to its ambitions. No, no, no it kind of, kind of stumbled a little bit. All right. Well, let's take a complete like 180, mm. go off in a different direction, but it is another film that is on Netflix. Let's talk about a film called a whisker away. Hey, whisker. Uh, this is a new anime film, uh, from a pair of directors. Uh, there's a Tomo, sorry, Tomotaka Shibayama, Mm. Uh, who was a key animator on a lot of big movies. Um, they worked on Spirited Away. Um, they worked on the TV series Blue Exorcist. Uh, and it's co-directed by Junichi Sato, who directed, I think, like 200 episodes of Sailor Moon. Okay. Like a lot of Sailor Moon. Uh, and this is an animated fantasy about teen romance. Mm. It's about a young woman. She's in high school, or junior high. And she's in love with one of her classmates, and she doesn't know how to talk to him about her feelings. And he doesn't know kind of what she's all about because her whole way of communicating is to be actually really outlandish and theatrical. And he's generally more quiet and reserved. Okay. So even though it seems like she's pretty clear that she's got a crush on him, she's still not talking like a genuine way about how she feels. And she doesn't even know like what he thinks of her. Hmm. And through a stroke of magical fate... Uh, she runs into a cat demon. And the cat demon offers to give her a cat face. And the cat face, it's a cat mask. All right. And when she puts on the mask, she becomes a house cat. Okay. And she starts visiting the boy she likes as a house cat and becomes basically his cat. And he's able to be affectionate with her. And he's able to talk about his feelings with her because no one's talking back and judging him. And yet... That doesn't seem to be translating to her as a person. Mm -hmm. And finally the cat demon comes to her and says, well, you could just be a cat full time. <laughs> you, could give away, you could give away your human life. Give me your human face. I'll, there are t the market for human faces is huge for cats. So I can give it to a cat and you can be a cat for forever and he will love you and he will take care of you. Um, and that's the dilemma that she's in. Is uh, she will she to be a cat or not? Will she continue to live her life as a cat? And if she does, will mm. she regret it? Um, mm. It's a simple fantasy idea, but mm. it's actually really beautifully told. Okay. Um, there's a lot of really wonderful character animation here where um, there's this amazing like, little bit like early on when the movie kind of... At first the movie was playing kind of coy about what the plot is and she's talking about how like, yeah, I know he seems kind of like he's not into me at school, but the other night like we cuddled under the stars and he confided his true feelings to me. But she remembers it as just her being a person, but actually he was just with a cat. So oh, okay. it's these the movie's playing cute for about five, ten minutes, but um, afterwards we start seeing her like as a cat more and there's this cute, weird bit where we see her as a cat washing her paws in a sink. 
where she was just like, man, pooping is so hard as a cat. It's so oh, weird. I'm God. not going to. We don't see her do it or anything like that, but they just talk about the realities of it. It's just like being a cat kind of sucks sometimes. This is not the good part. <laughs> the cat demon is just like, why don't you just lick your butt like all the other cats? And she's like, because that's gross. You get used to it. And it's weird little details like that that I like but the, the real heart and soul <laughs> uh, they had to address the shitting in a box aspect of this they didn't have to they chose to see this it's not it's not a rude movie it's not uh, a crude movie it's a it's cute to see a cat wash its hands okay Luca you could learn a thing or two is, Lu- is Luca a dirty dirty cat he can be we gave him a bath this weekend it was very cute Aww. when he when we bathe him he looks all spiky that's adorable. <laughs> it's like a punk rock cat. Um, but uh, what it really is about, more than anything, is about uh, the way that kids haven't learned to communicate yet and the way kids aren't even really fully aware of their own feelings yet. So how can they tell other people? Mm-hmm. Um, but they yearn for human connection. They yearn to connect with somebody and to share their uh, thoughts, feelings, and loves with somebody. And um, how when you're young, you can make a lot of really extreme mistakes and the trick is not to make those mistakes permanently. Mm. You know, the trick is not to do something that will doom you in some way, literal or figurative. And so the cat thing becomes a metaphor of someone who is sort of living out the way they want to live, but in a way that actually doesn't nourish or improve their lives. It's only in seclusion and it mm. only uh, it amounts to retreating from the world. Um, and... Um, yeah, it's about overcoming and overpowering that. And I particularly like in the third act when things start getting kind of weird and we go into like the, the fantasy world of the cats where like only cats can see how to get to Cat City and like there's a bunch oh, okay. of weird fun stuff. And um, it's really quite charming. It's really quite lovely. There's there's a few weird bits. Most of them are fun. Um, but um, yeah, this is if you if you're a fan of movies like Your Name which was this um, huge anime blockbuster, like made all the money in Japan and um, won some awards here in America. And a lot of people really do love it as a sort of a fantastical teen romance story with a lot of heart to it. Um, Then something like a whisker away will definitely, I think um, I was going to say scratch the itch, but like, you know, scratch your cat ears or whatever, because your cat ears are scratchy. Oh, that sounds adorable. It's really quite sweet. It's not my favorite anime film of the last few years or anything like that, but I do Mm -hmm. recommend it like heartily. I've uh, not through any conscious effort, but I feel like I've fallen out of like a lot of modern anime films. I haven't yeah. seen Your Name. Uh, yeah. I, I didn't see The Boy and the Beast. I did see Wolf Children, which was really, really, uh, really acclaimed. So much. Yeah. It's, it's pretty good. No, um, Mamoru Hosoda uh, like pushes my buttons, yeah, man. But like, I know, I know you, you talk about Summer Wars a lot. That's another one I still haven't seen. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I, you I liked Mirai. Like, that was another Hosoda film. Oh, it's true. I yeah. really liked Mirai. I yeah. thought Mirai was quite good. Yeah. That train sequence still gives me nightmares. Oh, it's so creepy, right? <laughs> so good. Um, so yeah, this is this one is uh, kind of squeaked on the Netflix. Nobody's talking about it. But if you like animation, you like teen romance, you like fantasy stuff that isn't all about like war or whatever. Um, yeah, this is definitely worth checking out. Okay, very cool. All right, and then uh, we got one more from you, and it's a uh, documentary. It's not a documentary. It's not well, a documentary. Actually, well, uh, do you want me to talk about the documentary, or you want me to talk about? Uh... Oh, I thought you had two more. I do. I thought, I'm sorry, I thought I have, I had one more. No, I have a documentary, well, and, and I saw Agnieszka Holland's new movie. Well, your call. Okay, well, let me talk about Agnieszka Holland's new movie. Okay. Um, you probably know Agnieszka Holland. She's, uh, uh, and I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. That's how I've always pronounced it. Uh, she is a uh, Czech, or she's a Polish filmmaker, excuse me. Uh, and she, 
uh, kind of burst onto the scene in America uh, with uh, Europa Europa. Mm-hmm. 1990, uh, yeah. Yeah, which was a big awards darling back in the time. And she still is an awards darling because just uh, about eight or nine years ago, she made that film In Darkness, which is about somebody using the sewers of Poland to uh, uh, help Jews flee the Nazi regime. Mm-hmm. Uh, she directed a really interesting um, Leonardo DiCaprio film in the 90s called Total Eclipse. Uh, which is all about mm-hmm. him having a love affair with a famous writer, and I can't remember. Yeah, who the she she had a, a pretty good run of uh, well regarded art house. Hits oh, she in the did 90s that really there. good version of the nineteen uh, the nineteen ninety three version of the Secret Garden. That's right. That yeah, was, that was her as well. Yeah, uh, this is her latest film. It's called Mister Jones. Uh, there are many films called Mr. Jones, so make sure you're looking up the right one. Mm. This but is, this one is mine. This is an, another biography, very much like Wasp Network, mm. about a real reporter. His name was Gareth Jones. He's a Welsh reporter who, uh, in the early 30s, was one of the first people to interview a uh, rising politician named Adolf Hitler. And uh, he did say, there's something kind of dangerous with this guy. We need to keep an eye on it. And then... Whenever he said something like this into a room of stuffy guys with snifters of brandy, they would say, <laughs> he needs to learn how to run a country rather than just throw rallies. <laughs> Trump reference. It, it's, it's pretty on the nose, um, which is fine because it's okay for a thriller to be topical. And mm-hmm. Sometimes uh, the parallels are just there. And this is about uh, this real reporter who actually went out to investigate a story that he heard was going on in the Ukraine under the Stalin regime uh, as to what was happening to a lot of smaller villages uh, in in the Ukraine. And he discovers uh, what came to be known as the Holodomor, which was actually a government-orchestrated famine that was being used to wipe out small cities in the outskirts of the Ukraine. Dear God. Millions of people starved to death. Oh, my God. And nobody talks about that it. That's not well publicized. No, not, that's At, at least up. not in America. Yeah. Um, because we're ignorant to world history, unfortunately. Well, um, yes. But yeah, this is not a well-known story in, in America. This isn't the kind of thing that we learned in high school. But uh, he, yeah, a lot of this movie is, the first half of it is really kind of this corking, almost uh, almost an adventure. It feels uh, like a, a little bit more of a steely Indiana Jones meets John Grisham sort of thing, where there's a lot of fast edits and he's meeting all these interesting people. And here he is in a German cabaret learning all of these secrets from Peter Sarsgaard. And he ends up... Uh, getting this almost like kind of heroic quality. We get to know sort of the, all of these dangers, what's going on in the Ukraine. When he gets to the Ukraine, it becomes incredibly bleak, incredibly fast mm. because millions of people are literally starving to death. Well, yeah, he's in a train car and he's sort of sitting with some of the rich, hoi po- uh, rich people up front. Yeah. And then he says, excuse me, I don't want to spend your money. I feel bad about this. I'm actually kind of an honorable guy. And I know that there's a lot of suffering in the world right now, and I don't want to feel like I'm just sort of taking advantage and and overindulging. He goes into another car. No seats. People are just sort of sitting there, and they're clearly just starving to death. They're pushed off the trains. They're shot at by unknown assailants. And he just sort of gets to know just how horrendous all of this was. And a big portion of the film is him living with the people of the Ukraine who are starving to death. Damn. Uh, He ends up escaping barely by the skin of his teeth. He reports the story. But because England's economy was so bad at the time and because they needed Russian money, they decided not to report on it and actually started to discredit him as a reporter because he was reporting the truth. 
Oh, that's um, fucking horrible. I've heard too many real life stories about just that exact mm, kind of thing, and that's yeah, so fucking um, horrible. And, and the, is it as good as the story makes it sound? Like, it sounds, I, the story sounds riveting. I really liked this movie. It's actually really gripping, it's really exciting. It feels like. Uh, a bygone Hollywood thriller that isn't really made much anymore. Yeah. About sort of brave soldiers uh, exploring history in an exciting sort of way. Mm. I feel like that was uh, the MO back when Agnieszka Holland was actually making stuff like The Secret Garden, Europa, yeah. Europa. Uh, and I loved that kind of thriller. I loved this exploration of certain facets of history and I also loved that the hero is not a guy with a gun it's a reporter yeah and uh, this would make actually a really good one two three punch with films like Spotlight and The Post mm. about how reporters and newspapers are the ones that are actually trying to speak truth to power and are the ones who are really finding out what's going on in the world and they're the only ones who are willing to expose injustice mm-hmm. when of course we have unjust people running things including their own newspapers yeah uh the government clark in that movie is played by kenneth cranham who is an actor i know from hellraiser 2 oh he was played, he the main bad guy in he played dr chenard in oh hellraiser 2 yeah. he was still acting that's cool yeah yeah he's he's around i just hadn't seen him in a long time yeah, I've, I've seen him crop up in british films awesome. here and there and uh because I associate him with Hellbound Hellraiser 2, of course, <laughs> I see this horrendous monster. Because <laughs> he turns into a horrendous monster in that movie. Uh, well, that's cool. I'm really glad you had you were able to make the time for that one. Yeah, that I, cool. I really enjoyed this one. Okay, and, uh, great. I, I wasn't. I hadn't caught up with Agnieszka Holland in a little while, mm. so I'm glad that she's still she's still got it. She's been making a lot of TV. I've seen a lot of the TV that she's yeah, written. She did, like, like, she, Tremé directed. and The Wire and yep. stuff like that. Yeah. Amazingly directed shows, both of them. Um, so, like, I've been a fan for a bit, but yeah, it's been a while since I've seen one of her mm. films, and I couldn't make the time for this movie because so, it's a little longer. I couldn't fit in my like my viewing schedule, mm. but I'm really glad you did. And uh, I and this is a time when I want to say see all of her movies now. Yeah, why let's not? let's not do this when she passes and we have to do an obit and just sort of look yeah. back and say, wow, she really did have a great filmography. She has a great filmography. Yeah, she's done dozens and dozens of films and done a lot of really, you know, critically acclaimed television. Yeah, go back, find find her name. Yeah. Pick a pick. If you yeah. want to start with some of the big ones, um, I think I saw Europa Europa when it came out, but her Secret Garden is excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, just pick some stuff out, just randomly. Why not? Um, okay, let's move on. Uh, I saw a new thriller that is on Amazon uh, that is from an Academy Award nominated director that nobody knows. Uh, his name is Patrick Volroth, and he was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Short Subject. Okay. For a short that we both reviewed, like this would have been several years ago now, uh, but he was nominated for a film called Everything Will Be Okay Ooh. about a little girl who doesn't realize she's being kidnapped by her father and taken away from mm. like her mother and everything. And dad's telling her everything's going to be okay. And she starts realizing that things don't seem okay, dad. And, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it's really gripping. It's very well done. And his new film uh, is basically that level of tension, just ratcheted up a lot. Um, 7500 refers to the signal for an airplane hijacking. If you're a pilot on a passenger jet, uh, Mm -hmm. 7500 is the code you put into your uh, dashboard, and that's the code that they know to, okay, we have a a hostage situation, we have a hijacking situation, we're mobilizing. The film stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt as a co-pilot on a ship, uh, ship on a they're all ships I guess but on an airplane, <laughs> airplane. on an airplane one of, the, uh, one of those newfangled flying ships yes uh, he's a co-pilot on an airplane uh, his girlfriend and they have a son together uh, is one of the stewards 
And um, they're just on a routine run. Mm. And then about 10, 15 minutes into the into the flight, uh, the plane gets overtaken uh, by hijackers. And the hijackers have... Uh, what they did was they purchased um, like wine bottles from the duty-free store mm-hmm. and then smashed them up in the bathroom and formed them into weapons. And that was like their big oh, yeah. uh, terrifying scheme. Mm. And uh, that's actually like... that's That actually could be a thing that's creepy um but the gimmick of 7500 is that almost the entire movie except for a little bit at the beginning and a little bit at the end is set in the cockpit we never leave okay and we're just stuck in there with joseph gordon levitt his co-pilot is stabbed during the initial attack and he has closed the door, and now the hijackers are doing everything they can to try to break in, while everyone on the radio says that's the one thing you can't do is open that door. You gotta <laughs> land this plane, you gotta land it safely, and he's like, they're killing hostages. We know, and that's terrible, but it's worse if they get into the cockpit, you have to land the plane. It's panic room on a plane. It's panic room at 25,000 feet. All right. Like, and that's a good pitch, actually. Um, the movie has this sort of Alfred Hitchcock and his experimental phase kind of vibe going where... Um, and you see films like this every once in a while, like Grand Piano. Yeah. Or we were just talking about Phone Booth. Yeah, these are... Oh, I, we barely mentioned Phone Booth, but yeah, that's true. These films are like, we're going to f- try to find a way to do a thriller, but we're going to try to find a way to do it in a really condensed space or mm. where the hero has almost no options. What are they going to do? This one's more plausible than a lot of those. Like Phone Booth, we have this like sniper with almost godlike powers at the heart of it and um but here it's just a, one guy mm. in an impossible situation how is he going to get out of it and it works it's highly effective it's it, intense it's riveting uh Joseph Gordon-Levitt is able to carry pretty much the entire movie by himself um and he's able to make you really feel for his plight you're able to understand just how complicated his situation and how morally conflicted he is about every bad choice he has to make and every good choice he has to make, which also has consequences. Um, the sound design is excellent. I highly recommend, since you can't watch this one in a theater, uh, it's another one I recommend putting on your headphones for because the sound design is very realistic. It really Ooh, does yeah. sound like... Like, you put on the headphones, and it's if you've ever been on an airplane, you know there's that, that constant kind of white noise hum. Yeah, yeah. And personally, I actually, I'm actually mildly phobic of flying. Like, I can do it, but I'm always super tense the entire way. Oh, and yeah. one of the things is that that noise is just really, I associate that with anxiety. Because oh, I'm, yeah. Because I'm completely out of control. Like, I have no control over my environment, over where we're going. Mm. If anything bad happens, I'm just strapped into a chair and hoping for the oh. best until that noise stops. Right. So that noise to me is just intense to begin with, and they keep it going the entire film. It never feels like a movie airplane. It always mm. feels like you're right there above the engines. Mm. Everything is super intense. Everything feels like they did the research. There may be details they got wrong, but it feels accurate. Right. The biggest problem with the movie, and it is a problem, uh-huh. is that the villains of the piece are stereotypical generic terrorists. Ge- yeah. Generic, you know, Middle Eastern terrorist hijackers. Oh, and that sucks. But it's also because the movie never stops to talk about politics very long and there's no one positive or negative commenting on the situation. It gets away with it better than most movies would because 7500 is all about the immediacy 
yeah. of the event. It's not about thinking about what it means. It's not about um, thinking about the greater context in which this is all occurring. This is about, okay, regardless of who's doing it, the plane is being hijacked and people are in danger and I'm the pilot and my co-pilot is bleeding out and I'm the only one who can possibly do anything right now. And that level of intensity, they are able to keep it going the entire film. And it works. It feels like an Alfred Hitchcock Presents episode or like a really great radio play. Mm. And it never really goes beyond that. It never really acquires deeper meaning. But I was hooked. I can't deny it. I was genuinely like excited to see where this movie was going next. I was nervous for the people on the plane. Um, it really felt like something really genuinely bad could happen throughout the entire thing. It doesn't feel like it's everything's going to be safe and fine. Mm. Um, so, yeah. I Again, it's got issues with um stereotypes and that's a problem but as a just a gimmicky thriller it's very well crafted and i mostly recommend it all right it sounds good i like those gimmicky thrillers yeah. and you're talking about how the the plane noises give you anxiety i've, I've actually found those noises to be quite comforting yeah we're totally uh, different people <laughs> those kind of like incessant machine-like noises relax me well that's how i am with the movie and we've talked about this a bunch of times mm. uh the um beyond uh, the black rainbow yeah the yeah. panos cosmatis film i was trying to remember his name yeah. uh there's a there's a sci-fi film called beyond the black rainbow that everyone is a huge fan of except me and it's not because i think it's a bad film it's because every time i've tried to watch it i've fallen asleep within 30 minutes because it has this room tone mm. that just puts me to sleep like a baby <laughs> listening to a vacuum on a on a monitor mm. like it's well, just, it, it, ugh, it it's it, peaceful it, re but, it, re yeah. it relaxes me it's peaceful but then when like something disturbing happens it like makes it all the more nightmarish ah. Like Eraserhead has that same effect because it's all just these grinding machine noises mostly throughout throughout the whole film too. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm listening to that. It's like, okay, you're in the middle of chaos. Well, if there's nothing you can do, you can relax. <laughs> I got no responsibility now. Tell me about the documentary. The documentary is called You Don't Know Me, N-O-M-I, You Don't Know Me, as in Nomi Malone, as in Nomi Malone, the main character from the movie Showgirls. 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 That's the past tense of Showgirls. That should have been the title of the, the documentary, <laughs> Showgirl. Showgirls was Paul Verhoeven's 1995 film. Uh, at it's the a remake of All About Eve set in Las Vegas with... Uh, well, yeah. exotic dancers. Yeah, and uh, and it it's a notorious turkey, big, 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 big bomb for MGM back in 1995. It they, won a bunch of Razzie awards. Paul Verhoeven was classy enough to pick up his Razzie awards. Good for him. Um, yeah. It was it was released by a major studio as an NC-17, mm. with the idea that well, Basic Instinct made money. Maybe people will actually go to see an NC. No, they will not. No, they won't. No, maybe they would have if it was good. Um, maybe. <laughs> Showgirls, or at least sold as uh, camp. Showgirls stinks, and I love it. Uh, it in fact, it, its life cycle uh, has kind of come and gone. It was rejected at first. They tried to push it as a cult classic right away. That didn't take. They had to wait a little while before it really started to gain an appreciation as this really klutzy... It's completely misogynistic, but a lot of... Uh, it's so strange that it becomes really enjoyable to watch. Mm -hmm. uh, Joe Esther has... Uh, really notorious celebrity screenwriter at the time was paid a huge amount of money to write it. And, uh, 
it's uh, clearly just this really kind of jejun masturbation fantasy for him. But it's not actually uh, that sexy. It's that's the weird fact, thing about it. Yeah, it's, like it's there's kind a, of there's the a opposite. lot of a lot of nudity and sex in it, but it's such a mechanical version of sex that it actually isn't like fun at all. Which is weird because Paul Verhoeven has made sexy movies, or at least mm. movies with sex scenes that could be considered erotic. Yeah. For some reason, to Showgirls, he was just didn't yeah. want to do it. The, he wanted to put the sex scenes in the movie, yeah. but he didn't want to make them sexy. You Don't Know Me is a not entirely clever movie about how about that process, about yeah. how the Showgirls experience this life cycle, and it tries to really stress that it's it's a piece of shit. It's no, it's a secret classic, and we're finally at this point where we can say no, it's actually kind of both. Yeah. And, it's uh, entertainingly bad. Can yeah. we, we can kind of agree on it's that. It's bad they're, and it's entertaining. I'm not going to say it's good just because it's entertaining. Like, there are bits in it that are good. I actually think Gina Gershon gives a very good performance in this movie, for example. Yeah, she, she knows she's in trash. Yeah, and, they, and she's selling it really well. And they talk to... Uh, and there's not talking heads. It's actually just audio where they talk to a lot of uh, filmmakers and fans... Or not filmmakers, but fans, critics, and then they have, like, interviews with the filmmakers from, like, mm. press releases and stuff. Any film critics... Uh, we know out of curiosity uh, sadly not, not none that we know personally well that's not sad I was just sort of mildly curious every once okay. in a while I'll see a documentary like this and there's like one talking head I'm like, like hey I know that okay, guy hey there's Alonso yeah, yeah. there's Clark Wolf holy yeah. shit like that kind of thing but like usually it's a bunch of people I don't know yeah, it's, uh, like um, in uh, Scream Queen Jason Fozzie Nelson oh, yeah. someone we know yeah he's, he's in it he's on, on screen for like nine seconds but there he is he's yeah it was really really cool to see him uh, no, nothing like that and you don't know me no, yeah. none, none of our peers are in this one but Only our I, betters. I, uh, it really is trying to bend over backwards to create a narrative, like this really interesting narrative for the life of showgirls. And I think when you apply the narrative they're creating to the way a lot of cult or camp movies are accepted in general, then it becomes a little bit more fascinating. Mm. The way that a lot of films are rejected at first and then eventually embraced uh, Joel Schumacher passed, and a lot of think pieces started coming out saying, "No, actually, Batman and Robin was good." No, well, no, it wasn't. But I understand that you can develop an appreciation for how it was a large, ambitious, interesting to look at piece of junk. I think my thing with the whole blank movie was good. Actually, mm. is something that we're seeing a lot of lately. Um, a lot re- of film re- relitigating well, a lot of these I mean, things. here's here's the deal. A lot of uh, uh, film publications, people who write about movies, mm-hmm. um, there tend to be trends. You know, mm-hmm. there was a whole time when we would go through, like, every year was the anniversary. We'd just write up anniversary pieces of everything. But mm-hmm. after about ten years of that, we've kind of covered all the anniversaries. Because, <laughs> yeah, five years later, you just rewrite the same piece. Yeah, it's, it's, we're kind of done. So, like, we... And then we go through a whole bunch of period where everyone's doing lists. And now we're doing a whole thing where we're taking movies that have bad reputations. And we're letting people who genuinely enjoy those movies sort of return to the conversation and maybe steer it in a positive direction. Which I have no objection to, as long as it's honest. But... One of my thoughts on that whole phenomenon mm. is that in in some cases I totally agree. These movies are good, actually. And in some cases I'm like, okay, we just found the one person who liked Nightmare on Elm Street, the remake. Yeah. <laughs> no, that one was really good. But no. I think I think what happens sometimes is that a lot of these movies get lambasted when they first come out because it's topical to see and talk about them. Yeah. But then over time, most movies get forgotten, or at the very least, people become dispassionate about them. Mm. So that there's a lot of movies where 
yeah, probably a lot or even most people still feel more or less the way that they've always felt about it, but they no longer care enough to write an article about it. Mm-hmm. And the only people who do care enough are the people who really like it. And now that there's no one really with the passion or verve to really write a contrary piece, positivity can take over and all mm-hmm. of a sudden Space Jam is good, actually. No, it's not! No. It's I'll not- actually passionately fight that one, but like... Uh, there's most people aren't really like I don't care about Space Jam anymore fine whatever you like it good let that be its legacy <laughs> yeah, man, mm. Where, wherever it lands there shall it be buried the problem is we just get more Space Jam I know and we, and we get, are getting another Space Jam it gets canonized and a lot of attention mm. is paid to it when we can steer the conversation toward more interesting filmmakers uh, uh, where's my Quackbusters reboot like that I'd much rather have how long Space Jam how reboot. long before they remake Gus uh, <laughs> Gus? Which one was Gus? It's the, the, the one about the donkey that plays football. It's a live action oh my god, Disney I forgot film. about Gus. You're right. <laughs> is that Disney that did that? It was a live action oh Disney god. film from All right. 1970 blah blah. Oh my god. But uh, when you're dealing with just showgirls, I feel like this film is really straining to fill its running time because they spend actually a good deal of time talking to uh, the actress who, pl- who looks a lot like Elizabeth Berkley, who ended up playing Elizabeth Berkeley roles on stage in sort of comedy musical versions of both Saved by the Bell and also Showgirls. Well, that's uh, yeah. interesting. I don't they, know if she, she, she should take point. Yeah, but, they, they yeah. Ta- but yeah she get, talks a lot about how relating to this movie really kind of saved her and saved her when she was going through a really dark time in her life. And that, okay, that's great. That, that she, is great. She, yeah. she used this to su- survive. I'm not sure what that... M- if that's a comment on the showgirls phenomenon at large though. Mm. Uh, and a, they do talk to a few critics who very rightly point out what this film is a bad masturbation fantasy mm. that failed because it was not really well directed. There are some people who say that Paul Verhoeven uh, is considered really master satirist when he's dealing with violence, but they're not willing to say the same thing when he's dealing with sex or women's issues and how there might be some sexism, but that is only brushed past uh, in this larger conversation about showgirls. And I think that would be a really interesting path to go down. I think, I think that at least deserves some commentary Mm. because I think a lot of Paul Verhoeven's films are commentaries about American society or at the Mm. very least Western European society or both. And, um, and, you know, his use yeah. of sex in films like Basic Instinct and Showgirls mm-hmm. are seen as bad decisions, whereas his use of violence in something like Robocop is seen as kind of brilliant. And yeah. those things are said by male film critics. And it would be mm-hmm. interesting to explore the inherent sexism of a film that is about women being lambasted more than a film that is about men. Yes, now, worth the discussion. T- yeah. To be fair, Showgirls is quite bad. <laughs> <laughs> Because it is a film about women, I, but it's made by and it's made for ma- a male audience. Yeah, I'm going to be perfectly honest here. I couldn't see Showgirls when it came out because I was still in high school and they, you know, they could get into uh-huh. a theater. And, and then it took forever to be able to rent it. And then I finally did. And I'm like... This is long and tedious. It kind yeah. of is. It's just not a well-told story, like even mm. for a prurient story. Yeah. Um, and it's and it never really overcomes its prurient. So like it embraces its prurient. So mm. it's never like a classy story about a classless mm. part of society or anything. Yeah. And and yeah, I've revisited it multiple times. I get why people who are in the cult for it really dig it. I, I can enjoy yeah, like, watching it, I guess, but I just 
I'm totally dispassionate about it. Okay, like I just like don't a, have like I said, I love it. I do way. love it. I I can <laughs> I can criticize it a lot, and it gets really tiresome. This documentary when you have people like really going into the mechanics of a scene. Like in this one, it's a shot reverse shot of uh, the conversation. It's the one where uh, Nomi and Crystal are having their their lunch at Spago, and they're talking about eating doggy chow. Yeah. And uh, partway through that scene, now this is actually just to dissolve to express the passage of time, but partway through that scene, they they do the shot reverse shot and then they violate the 180 degree axis. Mm-hmm. So now Nomi's on the other side of the screen Yeah, and it's like halfway through the movie and they're talking about this is like a, a flipping of the power dynamic between the two of them and Nomi is actually the star in that scene. It's like, no, that's actually a very mechanical device used to express the passage of time. <laughs> I don't think it's as clever as you're giving it credit for. Just because you noticed it was well, edited a certain way doesn't make it great. Well, I mean, if you could reasonably interpret it that way, then it is true. I, but I, if that's I suppose but sometimes so. I listen, I've written, it felt I've, like written a plenty, strain. I've written plenty of film papers like in college where I'm like, oh, I'm I'm two hundred words short. Uh, uh, what's something I can sort of talk up? On, this yeah. lamp is really interesting and a really potent metaphor for like you can you can gild the lily if you really want to, but you shouldn't have to. Like some it, movies it, just re- demand more like close reading than others. I yeah. think, and and the film end, ends up climaxing, telling the story of Elizabeth Berkeley's career and how this movie kind of ruined her career. It did completely. Uh, she, she was an uprising star. She took on this big budget studio picture. She gets to play the lead. Uh-huh. She's she a was young coming actress. Off of Saved who, yeah. by the Bell. This was like this big and jump she, um, in terms of like the kind of mature roles that she could yeah, take. She, she wanted to show that she can play this kind of adult role, and she was really daring because she's naked through half the movie and. It does these sex scenes where she looks like she's having a seizure. Uh, and she was criticized so harsh, harshly by the critics. Mm-hmm. And she was, I think, frankly, directed so badly by Paul Verhoeven. She, she's even said, and Paul Verhoeven has even said himself, that he directed her badly. Yeah. That he said he wanted to make, make the character really big and over the top. So he just tried to get her tuned up to 11 in every scene. Yeah. And it was too much. It, way too much. It, it, it's not a good performance. You can't take her or the movie seriously. It's, it's, it's not a good, same. it's not, I'm, I'm not saying she's a bad actress, but I'm saying she gave a bad performance in that movie. It happens. And I'm, I'm surprised they, they probably reached out to Elizabeth Berkeley to give comment, but I think she just didn't want to talk about it anymore. She, she felt really bad about that about movie. Yeah. She uh, said something like, they found the first time she made a public appearance on television after the release of Showgirls, and it was like eight years later. Yeah. And it was on like an infomercial. No, she has moved on. Uh, she, she has yeah, moved she on. She moved with her on, career. and then they, yeah. they did find a clip of her when they did this gigantic, when Senespia played Showgirls at Hollywood Forever. Uh-huh. Uh, here, here in Hollywood, there's uh, Hollywood Forever, the cemetery, host screenings. Yeah. They projected onto the side of a, ma- a mausoleum. And so it's, you can, it's, yeah, you can see sit movies. Sit among in the tombstones yeah. and then watch, watch the I've movies. Actually in never been oh yeah yeah it never came up i, I, I never had the opportunity yeah. i saw rock and roll high school there oh that's a good one yeah. um uh, but uh elizabeth berkeley did show for that and i think that was like the only public appearance maybe one of the only public appearances she did in relation mm. to showgirls okay and she even and she was much more at peace at that point she said i yeah, hope you enjoy it it's, it's been like 30 years big now, silly yeah. movie and then she like even 20. did the the famous nomi malone like hand flourish i'll give her and she like so she had a little bit of a sense of humor of course this was 20 years after the fact yeah after, after she kind of struggled and had to come back to the low level that she's currently at she, and i've seen her act in other things she did you ever see that movie roger dodger uh, no, I actually missed that. Yeah. I heard it was good though. So yeah, good she in that. she okay. she doesn't have a big role, but yeah, she's in that. And she's cool. good. 
All right. Well, um, okay. We need to review these movies on our critically acclaimed scale. Mm. The critically acclaimed scale is thus. We rate movies on a scale of C- to C+, where the highest a movie can possibly get is a C+. That is an unqualified recommendation, or at the very least, above average. Most movies get a C, because a C means average. <laughs> and then C- minus is below average, or possibly the worst movie of all time. That's a C-. Uh, on that scale, where does You Don't Know Me fall? It is a low C. Huh. I... I think the conversation to be had about showgirls could have gone down a much more interesting path. And this one is just sort of really trying to find something interesting to say about how cult films operate when we've already had much more interesting mm-hmm. analyses of things like that. And in films like best worst movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. 7,500 uh, gets a C plus from me. It's not an unqualified C+. I do believe that they didn't do enough uh, work to make the uh, villains of the piece feel more like real characters. Uh, However, as a tight-knit, single-location thriller, uh, it is remarkably effective and well-told, and I do uh, recommend it. I'll be with that tiny grain of salt. Uh, Let's see what we got here. Wasp Network. Wasp Network is a C. Okay. Wasp Network, uh, yeah, it is a half of a really great movie or maybe a, th- a fifth of a really great movie. Mm. Uh, I, I think that the, it gets too big for its britches and it kind of lags there like in the second half. All right. Uh, a Whisker Away, new anime uh, teen romance fantasy. I'm giving a very high C. Okay. Can't quite give it a C plus. There's something about it that I just think is maybe too slight. I don't think it's going to stick with me. Mm. Um, then there's some weird elements that maybe don't quite play, but uh, again, if you like teen romance movies, if you like uh, sort of gentle fantasies about people's feelings and cat demons and things, um, I think you will enjoy it. Okay. Okay. Um, Mr. Jones. Mr. Jones, I give a C plus. I think hmm. it's a good, effective thriller. I think it's a very shocking revelation to an ignorant American like myself. And uh, the performances are all really good. It's just a good classed up Hollywood thriller. Nice. Uh, and then lastly, uh, but, but not from Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> and then lastly, you should have left is uh, a high C minus from me. All right. I know I said it's the height of mediocrity, but mediocrity that I don't recommend mm. is got to go into C minus column. Okay. I feel like it's technically not the worst movie you're going to see. I just can't think of a particular reason why you'd really want to see this one, unless you're just, curious about a new film from david kep and kevin bacon and amanda seyfried there just it, there isn't enough of a draw there but if you do watch it you will find it's hardly the worst film of the year i just can't work up enough passion to say maybe you should see it it's not really worth it especially considering it's um you know only available for rental at a markup right now so um and that is the new releases for the week and now on to the critically acclaimed streaming club Uh, Once again, if you're joining us late, not sure how that works in podcast terms, but let's try it. (laughs) Uh, Every week while uh, the pandemic is up and there aren't new movies in theaters, uh, Whitney and I are taking the opportunity to catch up on older movies that one or both of us haven't seen before. And this week we decided to focus on the streaming service Disney Plus and look at some animated Mm -hmm. films that have slipped through the cracks for us. Uh, The poll included such films as Home on the Range... Uh, the Heroic Cow Movie, starring uh, Judy Dench, Jennifer Tilly, and I think, was it Rosie O'Donnell? Yes. Okay. Uh, yes. I've seen Home on the Range, but I don't okay. remember. Uh, most people have forgotten that movie existed. I also put The Reluctant Dragon on there, which is kind of half a Disney Studio lot tour and half animated movie about a dragon. 
Uh, but the movie, and you put 101 Dalmatians, which I was surprised you hadn't seen. I haven't seen one. There's a lot of those that either haven't seen or haven't seen since I was a very small child. Right. Which I... It's equivalent like to I, not I, I barely it. remember. Like, I mm-hmm. might remember one scene, so I don't think, like, I've, I've really officially seen it anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't speak of it with any confidence. I don't think I have seen 101 Dalmatians. I haven't seen Pinocchio since I was a small child. Oh, that, that, one's, that one. That same, with, same with Dumbo. A lot of, just a lot of the Disney animated films were not something I... Really wanted to bother with, frankly. <laughs> uh, but the film that won uh, was Robin Hood, a movie that came out in 1973, yeah. um, which was not a good time for Disney. Um, there were a lot of not good times for Disney, as it turns well, out. And it's it, hard to picture that because they're, they're, they have spent the last 20 years taking over the goddamn world. Well, it's tricky because there are good times for Disney in certain aspects, and there are bad times for Disney in certain aspects. So, for example, in the 1970s, Disney didn't have a lot of giant hits. They had a lot of movies that did respectably, mm. but they also had a lot of like <laughs> live-action movies that just sort of came and went and nobody cared about the gnome mobile which I think was 70s, <laughs> but like it's that it's typical of the era or Herbie goes bananas. Mm. Nobody cared. Like it did okay, but nobody cared. So Disney's movies were not where it was at. The 1970s, Disney was focusing way more on their amusement parks. So they were still controlling the world it's just this one part of the company was just not what they were relying on for money right now and as a result a lot of the animated output from that era is on the cheap side and you can tell that right away when you watch the disney version of robin hood because the opening credit sequence is against a white background (laughs) it's against a white background using recycled animation from later in the film it's not even like it's not even just like a handsome like opening credit sequence where we just see title cards Mm. it's just trying to make the movie look like it has more animation than it actually does what what it is this whole movie frankly is just a bunch of walk cycles yes uh if if you're into animation a walk cycle is well it's um it's a pattern. Oh. It's a pattern of movement. Yeah, it's if you're walking, like you, you want you... a walking character, and you reuse the same cells, and they just sort of walk. And yeah. if you uh, if you're a talented enough animator, you can put a lot of character into the walk. Yeah, and uh, Disney was very good at this, so they uh, came up with some pretty interesting animal uh, anthropomorphic animal character designs, mm-hmm. gave them some interesting walk cycles, and thought we can base a movie on that. One of the first <laughs> things in this movie. One of the first things in this movie mm-hmm. is uh, Robin, who's a, who's a fox. And uh, Little John, who's a bear, and he's basically played by the... He's basically Baloo from The Jungle Book. He's played by Phil Harris as well. Yeah, and... yeah. They, they reuse a lot of actors, and they reuse a lot of character designs and animation from, in particular, The Jungle Book. But you'll see a couple of, like, Aristocats and um, hmm. 101 Dalmatians-type characters in there as well. Um, but one of the first things they do is they run across uh, Prince John, uh, played by Oscar winner Peter Ustinov, who was actually one of the first big acting gets Disney had for one of their animated features. Uh, the uh, first big one was George Sanders for The Jungle Book. And then they had Peter Ustinov mm. for here. Peter Ustinov mm. from, uh, you know, Top Copy and a bunch of other great films. And and, uh, and Spartacus. Uh, yeah. But they th- run into this, this sort of procession. This was, this was a, a time, however, when a big actor being in an animated film was seen as a bad career move. Well, like it seemed, like, come it was, back from well, it seemed like it was slumming a little bit. But yeah, yeah. It, it, whatever. He, Peter Ustinov could get away with it. It was clearly just a lark. But they run across like the Prince John like wandering through Sherwood Forest on his way to collecting more taxes from Nottingham. And yeah, there's like 
40 different characters in this procession, but it's all the same six guys. It's the same rhinoceros. <laughs> it's the same hippopotamus. It's the same. They're all the same. They're just one after another. And the film reuses a lot of animation from other Disney cartoons. The film reuses a lot of animation from itself. Like mm. later on, you'll see the same similar shots over and over again. Now, I want to make something abundantly clear. That is not in and of itself a bad criticism. That is actually at a time when Disney was on the cheap, they had to cut corners where they could. Mm. They just did. All right. There was no way the film was going to get made unless they could find a way to make it a little more cheaply. There's a really good anime series right now called Keep Your Hands Off Etsukan. And you can see it on Crunchyroll and you can see it on HBO Max. And it is about a group of teen girls in high school who decide to start an anime club and make their own anime. And one of the things, it's, it's actually one of the best shows or movies I've ever seen about independent like movie production. Ever. Okay. Period. Really great. Because they understand the various roles people play. They understand how movies and animation can turn our fantasies into reality. But they also understand that there are practical considerations that must be met. And over the course of the series, you hear about all these characters and they have all of these wonderful dreams. And then their producer is just like, okay, here's the problem with all those wonderful dreams. We have two animators who are doing it all by hand. You need to cut corners. <laughs> and it's all about finding a way to cut yeah. corners. And they had, um, Robin Hood, they cut corners, but they cut corners where they could and then when they didn't cut corners there's actually some masterful character animation here mm. um from oh, disney's various old men that's their mm. iconic heroes um and uh, don bluth before he uh moved into the secret of nim realm and made his own way mm. he's a character animator on this as well yeah, and you can see a lot of his work got, got his credit really popping out. The, the, I, i'm not gonna fault the character animation that's something disney has always been good at even in their cheap films that the character are really well designed. I don't like the sameness of the design. I feel like they, throughout the Disney canon, the characters have always looked kind of the same. Yeah. Like the, the, the big CGI tiger face in Aladdin looks like a tiger from the Jungle Book and those films are 30 I years apart. I feel like that was uh, more of like a nod than it was laziness at that point. I feel like they were like, listen, we gotta have a tiger, why don't we make it look a little like Shere Khan for funsies? I, I feel like Disney has to cleave to a very specific aesthetic so they can be instantly recognized as like mm. a Disney thing. So, I, I don't like sort of the, oh. the lack of creativity there, but uh, the characters are still really well designed. I like the way they move. It was animated in this new kind of uh, Xerox style where they would actually Xerox uh, frames and reuse them and make them move that way. And mm -hmm. as such, it made the lines look a lot shaggier. It's yeah. like, the, it looks really sloppy. It wasn't and new. It had already been done by Disney and a bunch of other places. Yeah, yeah. But uh, like, just to be clear... The 101 Dalmatians even did that. The 101 Dalmatians, uh, Winnie the Pooh did it as well. I think yeah. it works a little bit better on something like Winnie the Pooh because uh, those are literal storybook characters. They're interacting with the words on the page. So it's yeah. okay that if they look a little fake. I don't here, mind. Here I think it looks like they're not, it's not finished yet. I, I kind of like that shabbiness to it. Mm. I it, There's something about that aesthetic. And yeah, it's an aesthetic that comes not so much from intent as it does from technical you know, practicality. Mm. Um, but there's something about it. There's something about that look where you look at a lot of the early Disney animated films and they're beautifully painted. Mm. 
mm. and stunningly like detailed. Watch and that, Lady and the Tramp at some point. Yeah, that Lady and the like, Tramp. It's or, a widescreen production with hand painted backgrounds. Oh, Lady and the Tramp or Sleeping Beauty. These mm. are all gorgeously, like meticulously animated films. And mm. the films where they started to use Xeroxing more to cut corners, and we do the same thing now. We just don't use a Xerox machine. You know, mm. we so it's all digital now. Yeah, we, but, but we cut corners in other ways. That's one of the ways you do it. Um, but there's something about it that makes it seem like, listen, Disney's been around for decades, and yet now their movies look more handcrafted than ever. There's something I kind of find appealing mm. about that. You know, it doesn't feel shiny to the point of... Of sterility. Of sterility, yeah, yeah exactly. It feels like you can feel that it's a little handmade. Mm. And I don't that's, know, that's I kind of dig okay. it. I kind of dig it. I, it's an aesthetic I can see why you wouldn't dig, but well, I, I've grown I, to like it. I would like that aesthetic if the film were a little bit quirky or unusual or had some character. Yeah. But this is a stirringly boring film. It's actually... It's, it's a Robin Hood story with almost a Smokey and the Bandit kind of casualness to it. Well, it, the re- there's a reason and for that. A bad filmmaking decision? Well, What's the reason for the it? The reason for that? Okay, so here's the deal. You know how uh, in Robin of Prince of Thieves, everyone complained that like Kevin Costner doesn't have a British accent? Uh-huh. Like, half the characters in this Disney Robin Hood don't have a British accent. Mm-hmm. In fact, a lot of yeah, them... Like Andy Williams and stuff. Yeah, a lot of them are, are uh, character actors who are best known for kind of westerns. Like, people like Andy Devine, who've been this... Like, Andy, this Andy Devine, Andy, Andy yeah, Devine. Yeah, Andy Devine have been playing this exact same kind of hokey you know, kind of dumb guy character for, for decades. Years, yeah. yeah, exactly. And now he's playing Friar Tuck and he's playing him like he's like a deep fried Southern fried Friar Tuck. Hmm. Apparently the reason for this is the way the movie was originally conceived is Disney was going to do Robin Hood, but in the old West. <laughs> And then it somehow which, which, it's starring Don Knotts. It sounds like one of their live action films yeah, in the seventies. And and at some point in the production, they decided to go back to basics, but they also decided to keep a lot of the cast. Well, and the whole and all of the songs as well, which are probably already written, I guess, mm-hmm. have this sort of folksy American bluegrass kind of quality to them, rather than feeling like anything that would mm-hmm. actually have been sung in yeah. Robin Hood's era. And yet, Robin Hood himself is the most British guy. <laughs> Like, ever. <laughs> ever. Yeah, He's played I, by an I actor actually... named Brian Bedford, who has this incredibly dreamy British voice. Mm. Like, he's just... He, he sounds... Listen, Errol Flynn is still the best Robin Hood. I think we can all agree on that. He will always be the best Robin Hood. Um, Brian Bedford might have the best Robin Hood voice. Yeah, he, he's fine. He uh, sounds the, dapper. Uh... I looked up a little bit about the production of this film because I was I was baffled by this movie. Yeah. Why? First of all, I understand it's cheap. They're just mm. at, at a, a low point. They're trying to save a lot of money. That's why they're using this xeroxing technique. Uh, and 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 I guess they had to cut like save on character animation, which is why there isn't a band of merry men. Like, yeah, it's they, basically just they uh, used up all of their character animation on like this little pack of moppets rather than you know one Will Scarlet, please. I mean, <laughs> the the rabbit could have been Will Scarlet. Who gives a shit? Make the rabbit Will Scarlet. Yeah, there's this little rabbit like uh, Robin like goes to this family of rabbits and uh, the mm-hmm. the sheriff of Nottingham, who's a who's a wolf, but he's got the exact same dimensions as little John. So when I was a kid, I thought he was just an angrier bear, <laughs> but it turns out he's just a wolf with mm-hmm. weird dimensions and. Um, um, he the the sheriff of Nottingham has just taken all of the money, like the last farthing from this rabbit family, including a farthing that was supposed to be the kid's birthday present. And then Robin shows up and like gives the kid like a little bow and arrow mm. for his birthday. And then we spend like the next ten minutes with these kids as they like run around and like meet Maid Marion and have weird games with her where they fight like 
her handmaiden Clucky, who's like a chicken who also at one point later in the film plays USC football with the shirt with like mm. Prince John's men, which is just weird yeah, but, and anachronistic. But, but, yeah, so I, I was I was so baffled by this movie. Well, yeah. Okay. First of all, Robin Hood with anthropomorphic animals, fine. Yeah. Whatever. Uh, you're you're saving you're cutting corners. You maybe you don't want to put so many characters. Okay. You know, I'd rather yeah. have a band of merry men, but okay. Yeah. Uh, why is this like a Smokey and the Bandit like shit kicker country kind of version of Robin Hood? Well, because it was going to be a western, and then they decided because, not to be. Yeah, well, from what I learned is that this thing was in production hell for literally decades. Yeah. Immediately following the production of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs back in the late 30s, they were going to make uh, Disney decided to make an animated film of Reynard the Fox based on the ancient poem, uh-huh. and they they designed some characters and they were going to put this into into production, but they decided not to for whatever reason. Uh, eventually the project reemerged, and they were going to do a Reynard the Fox combination with Chanticleer the Rooster, also based on an ancient poem. Mm. And there was going to be a Reynard Chanticleer movie. Okay, I'd love to see a Disney Reynard Chanticleer Why movie. Why not? They'd probably change everything, because that's what they do. They turn it into the Disney version of it. But okay, I yeah. bet the animation would have been great. Uh, and that ended up very slowly morphing into, well, if we have Reynard the Fox, why don't we make Reynard the Fox into Robin Hood the Fox? That makes a little bit more sense. Okay, we'll do Robin Hood. We'll mm. take some of these uh, designs from literally the 1930s. We'll start reworking them. One of the original directors said that he wanted the Sheriff of Nottingham to be a goat, and they were going to make all these other classical illusions. And very slowly, all of these, all of the studio tinkering that had just been infecting the project for literally decades ended up kind of pooping out this little thing <laughs> on a lo- on a low on a low budget and yeah. it's this baffling country western version of the Robin Hood story with animals and it's boring to watch and there's no action in it. I don't think it's boring. Okay. I think it's, I think it's mild. It's, it's I think it's fair uh, to say it's mild. I think it's I think it's not super intense. I think this is a movie Disney, I think at this point in its career, and I think you can point to everything from the Jungle Book onward for a little while when it comes to their yeah. animation, Disney was comfortable coasting on charm. The jungle, the jungle Book is considered a classic, and I think with the, for a lot of reasons that are good and some reasons that aren't. Mm. Um, but I remember when the John Favreau Jungle Book came out, and mm. I had intended to see the original before mm. I saw the remake. But I ended up seeing the remake kind of digging it, things that I didn't like about it, and then I literally came home that night and watched the animated version. Mm. The animated version is really shabby. The animated version <laughs> of The Jungle Book uh, makes Robin yeah. Hood looks like look expensive, and here's why. Every scene just sort of happens. Like, everything yeah, just sort of... Ha- scenes begin with just someone walking in from off-camera, and then they walk off again, mm-hmm. and then they dance for a bit, and then someone walks in again, and it's got this incredibly shabby... Like, it's finished, but it looks like it only went through, like, two drafts, <laughs> and they never bothered to actually really yeah, connect was... everything together very well. So I actually think the John Favreau version's a little stronger as a film, but... Oh, yeah, I guess they're paying more attention now. Yeah, but uh, there's, I there's think... things that they can't compete with, like Louis Prima and George Sanders, but... There's there's a lot of jazz in that, and I feel yeah, like... Exactly. J- jazz, I'm willing to accept uh, jazz as a musical choice in The Jungle Book if you're going to make it that kind of extemporaneous film where mm-hmm. everything feels kind of Jazzy. Lo- loose and made up like jazz. And indeed, it's based on a seri- The Jungle Book, which is actually a series of smaller stories. Mm-hmm. It's not one gigantic arc for Mowgli. Well, 
That's uh, what they chose for the movie, but yeah. Yeah, uh, the actual novel. So um, yeah, the movie uh, there, there's a lot more though. about that that I'm willing to accept. But seeing this country western version of Robin Hood actually called into question a lot of Disney's really weird musical choices over the years. Yeah, they made a lot of odd they've, choices. They've done a lot of really strange things. Like the Jazz and Jungle Book, okay, odd choice, but it works in that case. Yeah, it's fine. Uh, okay, we're going to make uh, Mulan. It's set in China, but we're going to get Donny Osmond to sing this big number about being a man. Yeah. That's a little bit odd. Okay, that's not as odd as we're going to make this movie, this uh, like kind of Hamlet-like story, uh, about lions living in Africa, talking lions, and they're just animals, and they talk yeah. about the circle of life. But we're going to hire Elton John. Yeah, that one always struck what? me as weird. The one that <laughs> here's what I'll say about I'll say uh, about the Lion King. Elton John brought it. Like he didn't just write songs; he tried to write really good songs. At least they don't yeah, fit the the mm, tone or anything like that. But they're at least really good. Here's I, you get Lady Smith, Black Mambazo to do the I music know. for them. Here's 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 the one that that baffles me to this day, and I uh, know people defend this. Uh, Tarzan. Tarzan has, I stand by this 100%, maybe some of the most beautiful 2D animation Disney ever did as a company. Just the animation alone in a vacuum is breathtaking. Every single time you hear Phil Collins do anything, it feels like it's in the wrong film. Yeah. It's completely wrong. It completely, it never sells the intensity. It never sells the romance. It always just seems like Phil Collins did a Phil Collins album and there happened to be some vague overlap with mm-hmm. what they were doing in Tarzan. It does not work for it's me. So, such but a strange, what strange I kinda work with What I kind of get here, though, in the Robin Hood version, is when you, it, again, it's not so much bluegrass as it is folk, and folk is about telling stories. Mm-hmm. Robin Hood is a story that has gone on for generations. In fact, even the original story itself, Robin Hood wasn't just a guy who stole from the rich and gave to the poor. He's the guy who inspired other people Hmm. to stand up to injustice. That's the whole idea. Even calling him Robin Hood was something that was, it's a superhero name. It's something that like elevates him and makes him larger than life. Gives him a mythic quality. Folk music was still, I mean, it was, it was kind of on the down. uh, It was kind of, was not not receiving age of its popularity. It was, yeah, yeah. It, there was a phase in American pop music in the mid twentieth century, from about the fifties to the sixties, where folk music was as big as anything. Hmm. And yeah, in the early seventies, there were a few people keeping it going, but it was not the number one thing anymore. But it was still fresh in everyone's memory. People still remember the power of folk music, and so saying, "Hey." You can kind of draw a line between all of these folk songs that we're singing about interesting people and important mm. figures and saying, like, hey, what people would have sung that kind of shit about Robin Hood? In fact, there's even a plot point in the movie, it's not an important plot point, where they sing a song about how awful Prince John is, and the song is so catchy that the Sheriff of Nottingham and the, the Prince John's, um, like, lackey Hiss, who's basically Ka the Snake. Uh, Played by Terry Thomas. Yeah, uh... They're, they end up singing it as well, even though it's not in their best interests for the song to be popular. So they kind of weave it in, and I think mm-hmm. it's 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 not a clean line, but I don't think it's as out of place as you're saying it. I think it's just kind of weird yeah, and tangential. It's not as out of place as Christian gospel in Hercules. <laughs> that one's kind of weird. That one's, but on the other hand, Hercules, you're going with the sort of Greek chords. No, 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 I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. All I'm going right. to do it. Hercules, you got the Greek chorus tradition. Okay? So having this kind of Christian gospel uh, uh, kind of vibe to it, where you've got 
backup singers talking, you know, going through the whole story mm. as we're up at the pulpit. It doesn't, it's not entirely different. Uh, functionally, perhaps not. Yeah, exactly. But, but that music means something very different than ancient Greek myth. I, I know. It's actually strongly associated with different kind of belief I systems. Think I think it was a bold choice. I'm not saying it works necessarily. Mm. I actually kind of think it did in that movie, but, uh, well, I, you know, it's, I, it's, I like it's the, a bold choice and good for them for making that. I think the songs are very witty, but I think Hercules is a very weird place to put those. I'm not disagreeing, but I think it's interesting, and I'm going to give them some credit for that. I, I, I kind of resent that Disney has this great reputation for being the ones keeping fairy tales alive when they're just getting their greasy fingerprints all over everything. <laughs> Okay, they, they, have, they have the one of the most pow- they have maybe the most powerful animation studio in the world. I think they at least outside of Japan. Studio. No, I think they have the and, most powerful one. And they have every opportunity to make really great, straightforward versions of these stories, which would play well to a modern audience. And uh-huh. they turn them into whatever the fuck they turn them into. They often, but sometimes they do do the straightforward. It's been a while. We're, yeah. at this, we're in a sort of post-irony phase with Disney right now. We're doing something. They wanted to get to the point where they were doing more straight-up fairy tales again, but then Tangled didn't do well. And well, at least the, not as well as they had hoped. Yeah. It was, they, it was really were, expensive. The problem yeah. with it, I think Tangled is their most expensive production. And yeah. I think it was just because they needed to create so many new kinds of programs just for the hair. Yeah. Hair's difficult in CJ. Yeah. Um, so they were going in that direction. They were going to do a more like, they are going to do a Jack the and the Giant yeah, it was, uh, Jack of the Beatstock uh, film called uh, Gigantic. Yeah, it was just be Tangled, Frozen, Gigantic. That yeah. was going to be their new tag. And then this, they never did Gigantic just because they moved on and found other things well, were more popular. But like, well, Frozen, ended yeah, it was being so popular, way more popular than even they expected. Exactly. So, um, I don't know. I don't mind that they play, and I think Robin Hood is a character who, you know, as we've already discussed, Errol Flynn had already kind of solidified mm. that character in cinema. Everything would just be commenting on it. So. At this point, trying to tell the ultimate Robin Hood story with an animated fox might be a fool's errand. We might as well have some fun with it. And there's a lot of fun to be had in this movie. Uh, One of the things I like in this movie is um, the plot is so simple, it's barely worth talking about. Uh, Robin and Little John are constantly stealing from uh, uh, Prince John. Mm. Um, And um, that's it. And over the course of the film, one of the things that they do or repeatedly mm. is they steal from little John through improv exercises yeah, and disguises and costumes and stuff. Yeah, it's very old fashioned theater mm. kind of mm. stuff where uh, Robin would pretend to be uh, a fortune teller and tell mm. Prince John everything he wants to hear while they're robbing him blind. And yeah, it's just, just make sure there's no fun or adventure. <laughs> What's not fun about that? There's suspense, there's wit, there's not, there's acting. Not, acting is fun, they're it's British. It's not funny, it's, it's kind of it's painful. Not, it's not especially funny, I'll give mm. you that, but it's not trying to really sell the yuck yucks. It's trying to just be sort of dashing and spry. And It feels like it's stoned. It's just, well, that's okay it's too. So, I, I suppose. That's not the end of the world. Yeah, um, but I mean, what eight-year-olds are getting blitzed and watching Robin Hood? Here, uh, well... It was the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't a bong in every household. There might have been. It wasn't there. Um, here's 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 what I will say about Robin Hood and the positive side, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, when they're not recycling animation, and even when they are, they're just reusing it, so it's losing a lot of its power. Um, the character designs are, are wonderful. There's a lot mm-hmm. of really wonderful character acting. I, there's this amazing bit. Just this really, I, I saw this bit. I had no memory of this, because I saw this a couple of times when I was a kid, and it had been mm-hmm. a long time. Um, where Hiss, the the snake who's Prince John's psychic, um, he's been like thrown in a basket and he's looking dejected. 
But it's hard to sort of sell body language for a snake, so they're doing most of it with his face. But he coils up his, like, body slash tail yeah. so that it, it like, he has two coils hanging over the side of a basket. No, like and elbows. Yeah, it looks like elbows, and he's just got his hand head on his hands, looking dejected. And it's such a clever bit of character animation. It's really, it's really smart and yeah, well crafted. I will, I will not, I will not fault the, okay. the character animation. I, I, I agree also, with you on every point. Though. I also like mm. most of the characters that we spend any real amount of time with. Again, I think Brian Bedford is as dashing and heroic Robin Hood as we have ever had. I could listen to his voice for hours. What a great Robin Hood voice. He sounds romantic. And um, his relationship with uh, Maid Marian, who's played by Monica Evans, they are so into each other. And there's something about that that's really cool. Like, they're not, like, playing it coy... Or like, oh, will they or won't they? Like, right from the beginning, she has a crush on him. He has a crush on her. They haven't seen each other for a long time. But when they finally do see each other, they are all over each other. And the second his cover is blown at that big famous archery contest, Mm. she is with him, and they are beating the shit out of everybody together. Mm. That is a relationship. I love positive relationships in genre fiction that aren't, like, artificially like kept at arm's length. Like a lot of people talk about, and I think with good cause, why like Morticia and Gomez Adams are like the ultimate relationship goals. Because they love each other no matter what. And they're super into each other and they're mm. super passionate about each other and they share their hopes and dreams together. And there's not a lot of conflict between them, but they're not boring because they're interesting people who have interesting stuff to do. And I think one of the reasons why Robin Hood has remained so popular is because that's a dashing Robin Hood. That's a fun made Marion. They have fun together. They're super into each other. It's a love story that you're not just getting into in the last couple of minutes mm. because they get married at the end or whatever and they're kept at arm's length the rest of the time. They're just in it. And that's cool. I can wrap my head around that. I can appreciate that. Okay. I like a lot of the music. It is weird, but I do like it. No, I, um, I couldn't hum any, except for the opening piece. Uh because uh, that opening number is the hamster dance. Yeah. Uh, for, for here's those, here's for a those piece of, of internet history. Yeah, this is a little weird corner of internet history. Uh, when the internet first became a thing. Yeah. Uh, and people had it in their house for the first time. This, I mean, the, the, the first pioneers out there were staking claims on memes, even if they didn't make sense. They didn't have to make sense. In fact, it was better if they didn't. And so, memes weren't stuff on social media. We really didn't have social media. Yeah, we have social it was a media. website, and it would yeah. just be a meme, and that was the whole website. So you could go to Hamster Dance, hamster with a P, hamsterdance.com, and uh, it was just a bunch of rotating gifs of hamsters uh, set to this little catchy tune, like a really kind of... Uh, Hamsterdance.com isn't there anymore. No. Who and I'll let tell, that fall? I'll tell you why. Disney uh, let it fall. Disney, damn you. Because uh, the piece of music on Hamster Dance was a little clip from Robin Hood, yeah. sped up, so it sounded like a chipmunk uh, singing it. Yeah. And it was just on a loop. And you could go to hamsterdance.com and watch these dancing hamsters and hear that obnoxious song. It was that kind of rudimentary technology was fascinating back in the late mm-hmm. 90s. Uh, did you ever go to you're the man now dog.com? Yes, I went to you're the man now dog.com. Yeah, which was a, a, a still photograph of Sean Connery at some awards show. The phrase you're the man now dog and a clip of him saying you're the man now dog from the film Goodwill, or not Goodwill Hunting, um, Finding uh, Forrester. Forrester. Just play it on a loop. You're the man now, dog. You're the man now, dog. And you'd go there and you'd drive, drive your friends crazy and you'd get drunk and you'd go to you're the man now, dog.com. You're the man now, dog is still up. Okay. <laughs> Just so you know, you can still go to that one. 
Uh, I couldn't find Yoda ate my balls. That seems to have been lost into the internet winds. Um, what was the one? Uh, I like the moon. But oh, it is the, full of cheese. Uh, uh, but uh, it's, it's, it's close to us. Those are the Spong Monkeys. Ah, yes. The Spong Monkeys from, I think it was called supergood.com. Mm. Yeah, they had a lot of really kind of, th- this was like pre-Flash era. Every, yeah. Everything took like uh, the end of the world.com. All of these things were the early internet memes. And Hamster Dance was one of the biggest ones. Disney uh, got, hold, got wind of the fact that this Hamster Dance thing was getting really popular. Mm-hmm. And they listened to it, and they said, hey, wait a minute, that's from one of our movies. They sent a cease and desist letter, and then they said, wait a second, it's really popular, we'll just buy it off you. So uh, rather than sue the sue the inventors of HamsterDance.com, I think they just sort of took it away from them. Okay. And it became Disney Hamster Dance, and they actually tried to make a series of animated shorts with Hampton the Hamster. <gasps> That's the first time hearing Which are about lost to time. Oh my god, this is the first time hearing about like, all little, of this. Little, like, simply animated. Like, it wasn't a, a really sophisticated show. It, was, it wasn't, it was no Hamtaro. Uh, but yeah, these cute <laughs> little hamsters started their own, like, brief online-only internet cartoon sort of things. Uh, and on Radio Disney, they did a dance remix of the hamster dance. Well, thank god. And that, I bet you can still find. If you were listening to Radio Disney in... 2001 mm-hmm. you probably heard the like really obnoxious electronica dance remix of the hamster dance <sighs> to me that's the legacy of robin hood <laughs> for a lot of people as adults in 2020 they watch robin hood and say yeah i want to have sex with those animals because i i from what i understand robin hood this particular film is a really big flashpoint in furry culture mm. Like, this film in particular is seen as kind of the start of it. A lot of people who watched this film as kids and started to fetishize the animals from this film in particular and how a lot of furry artwork and furry subculture memes and all the rest do stem directly from the character design in Robin Hood. I'm not sure why this Robin Hood and why not The Jungle Book or another film... Why, why Robin Hood is considered because this like, one's more romantic. I, I guess so. Why? But um, why? Why is Robin Hood considered really sexy when any other any of the other animal people I, aren't? I don't. I've heard this as well, but it's not my personal experience, and I cannot speak mm. to it. Um, what I do think, and this is just headcanon, I'm pretty sure this Robin Hood is a prequel to Zootopia, because if you think mm. about it, this whole Robin Hood, like, in addition to just being about animals being Robin Hood. Hmm. None of the actual animal pairings make a lot of sense. Why are there rhinos in the English countryside? I'm not complaining. I mean, they're allowed. It's just that's not where they are. So where we well, have is, here is, is a world it England? Is it Tennessee? Yeah, where it's it's in Nottingham. That's a place yeah. in England. Like, I suppose so. Here's the thing. Well, they even. I think they even say King Richard is the king of England. And yeah, long live England. Long live King Richard. They they talk about England. Um. This takes place not in, like, the real world, but people are animals. This takes place in this sort of condensed animal history. And I actually kind of would have liked it if we had sort of kept this up. Like, what if we had had this aesthetic, but had done something like Pecos Bill, the movie? Okay. But with, like, another fox or something mm-hmm. like that. I'm like, what? that would have been fine. That would have been cool. So when we got to... Disney ended up making a Picos Bill movie. It was, well, called, it was called Tall Tale. Well, it was live action, but mm-hmm. yeah, fair enough. Um, but when we got to, like, Zootopia, the idea of this sort of interconnected animal world where it doesn't really matter where everyone's actually from and they're all just, like, centrally located, mm-hmm. it's just something we 
all kind of accepted. And I think Robin Hood sort of helped establish that in our minds as something like just that's fine for animation. That's fine for the do. And you even think about it, it's like in Zootopia, oh yeah, foxes. Everyone knows foxes are all thieves. And I'm like, yeah, heroic thieves. I saw Robin Hood, the most heroic thief we had. He was a delight. My only major complaint with the storytelling of this movie, other than it's shabby, other than there's a lot of things that don't make a lot of sense, but it's freewheeling and fun. They forgot to put an ending in. <laughs> You're watching this thing, and there's this big action sequence where uh, Prince John has no, arrested Friar Tuck. Big, big, in quotes, big well, action no, no, sequence. No, 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 let's, let's, let's let him have this, because right. there, there's a big jailbreak, and they're also robbing Prince John while he's asleep using a big pulley system, and then uh, Robin Hood is, like, jumping from parapet to parapet, and, like, mm -hmm. now it's on fire, and he's got to jump into the moan, and it's an action sequence. And they get away, and they go, Oodle lolly! Because that's something they yell a lot in this movie for no reason. And they're all just like, Yay! We, we won the day! And then in the next scene, King John has been arrested, and Robin Hood has been cleared of all charges, because King Richard, also played by Peter Ustinov, uh, showed up off-camera and took back the country when we weren't looking just now. Mm. Come on! <laughs> Are you fucking? You can't even. Yeah, I just got a Peter's out. You couldn't it? put that in a yeah with Peter Houston up. Like you couldn't just like put that in a scene, like have a scene where like King Richard like mm. oh like Prince John's like I even heard they were talking about like doing a scene where Prince John was like about to kill Robin Hood, but then King Richard shows up and they decided that was a little too dark. That like Prince John was going to all of a sudden be actually evil enough to kill someone by hand. He's kind of like a you know. A, a childish villain in a lot of ways. Yeah, you could have done something it else. Sucks his thumb. It's a lot of thumb sucking jokes. Not just yeah. from King John either. Like a bunch of characters are. Sucking well, they're their they're making fun of Prince John when they do it. Oh, are yes. No, isn't the the chicken does it? She, well, she's, she's making scared. fun of Prince John. Oh, I thought she was just scared in that moment. No, she's making. And there's fun children of Prince who are also John. sucking the, their thumbs because they're yeah, little kids. They're making fun of Prince John. That's oh. the whole point of that scene. Oh, okay. I love you so much, Whitney. But damn it. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen. Uh, Look, I only uh, have a few brain cells left, and some films pass through them untouched. Well, let's just wrap it up. Uh, Disney's Robin Hood. It comes from a weird era of Disney. It's a weird film. There's a lot I really like about it, but I wouldn't put it anywhere near no. Disney's best. Um, Whitney, be honest. Like, get, get over the weirdness. I'm not saying it's not a criticism, <laughs> but without going into a rant about right. it, just what are your overall thoughts on the film and its quality? Uh, I, I feel like it's not finished. Mm -hmm. I feel not just the, because it's missing an ending. I feel like they they had some interesting ideas. They rushed it into production, and none of the ideas really stuck. I feel like they made a lot of very strange decisions that made a, a, a film that is so lightweight that nothing lands at all. It just sort of blows away. Mm. It just doesn't stay in your head, doesn't stay on the ground. It just it is a completely insignificant thing. Which is a weird thing to say about an animated film from Disney, the biggest animation studio in the world. Mm -hmm. Fair. Well, listen, next week on the Critically Acclaimed Streaming Club, we're doing a totally different thing. Like, couldn't be more different. Because mm -hmm. uh, we're going to head on over to the Criterion Channel. Mm -hmm. And uh, we decided to put on our poll a list of films from the French New Wave that one or both of us hadn't seen. Uh, the French New Wave was one of the most important and influential periods in film history. Mm -hmm. It's when a whole bunch of uh, young filmmakers, many of them former film critics, 
uh, decided to start making the movies that they wish people were making, movies that are uh, experimental in style and tone and commenting on cinema as they were also at the time cinema, movies that mm. felt human and were telling stories about modern day issues that other films like Hollywood type films were largely ignoring. Um, you can kind of pick any French New Wave film and you're going to get something interesting. And the film that got picked, and this is actually one of the closest polls we've ever had, uh, is a sequel to Francois Truffaut's classic The 400 Blows, which some people credit with kicking off the French New Wave in the first place. Hmm. Francois Truffaut was a film critic who decided to become a filmmaker, and in his first film, The 400 Blows, uh, is about it's about a young boy who is sort of lost in a system, um, doesn't really fit in with his parents, doesn't really yeah. fit in at school. And, like, yeah, po- poverty and rejection rule yeah. his life. Yeah, and it's just this kind of it's it's not cruel, but it is harsh. Uh, a look at the life of a young boy in mm. uh, in France, and the character at the at the forefront of the Four Hundred Blows, a character named Antoine Duanel, is a character that the Francois Francois Truffaut came back to repeatedly, mm. uh, not unlike Richard Linklater's before series. Uh, just to see what he's up to lately. Hmm. And so we're going to be talking about technically the third film in the series. There was a short between 400 Blows and uh, Stolen Kisses. Hmm. Um, we're going to try to watch the short as well. I've already seen 400 Blows. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there's a film called Stolen Kisses, which stars uh, the star of 400 Blows, Antoine Duanel. He is an adult now, and he becomes a private detective. <laughs> Very strange. What? can't wait to see what happens there so um we'll be talking about the original 400 blows because we'll need to in order to give you context mm-hmm. uh so any excuse really the movie's brilliant uh and we will also be talking about the film stolen kisses these films are available on criterion channel uh so if you want to watch along you absolutely can uh, if you're not a subscriber to criterion channel i do believe they have a free trial period you can definitely check it out it's one of the better streaming services that are available it's mostly art house and international cinema but almost everything on there is a guaranteed must watch mm. it's really excellently curated streaming service please do please 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 do yeah and of course we'll be back with more new releases on uh, various streaming services from netflix to amazon prime and beyond we'll be uh, talking about my spy oh that's right we'll be talking about my spy big theatrical release that was uh, that has moved to streaming the latest film to do so and we'll be talking about that one we most certainly will Uh, that's I guess that's the big one next week Mm. Um, but there's other stuff as well I think there's a new like Will Ferrell comedy coming to Netflix next week there is about the Eurovision Song Contest great I'm sure it will have a lot of dignity. Um, and we'll talk about other things as well. Uh, so thank you, everybody, for joining us. Uh, if you want to write in and talk about maybe some of the things that we talked about in this episode or anything else involving uh, the entertainment industry or the job of being a film critic or just anything at all, really, uh, you write in at letters at criticallyacclaimed.net and we might read your email and answer your email on an upcoming episode of We've got mail right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. We also have a ton of other shows here at the Critically Acclaimed Network and a ton of exclusive content at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Network. We have podcasts dedicated to Firefly, Star Trek, Disney, the Oscars, and other stuff besides. Um, if you subscribe now at almost any tier, you're guaranteed to get if, if at least several hours, if not hundreds of hours of content, just all of a sudden readily available for you. So... Um, 
Thank you for everybody who subscribes to keep this show going, and we're very grateful to you for it. We're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Viviani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And God, I think that's it. <laughs> everything. That's it's so everything. exhausting to end a podcast. It's so weird. But uh, thank you, everybody, for listening once again. And never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what? <laughs>